0: journal entry we need another interesting show here for you guys a lot of our other episodes have kind of been building up our historical background on this subject matter so we can get into a deeper layer we can go to another another level of this interesting historical expedition that we're on here so hope you will work with me as we continue to try to edify you and form you teach some of the lesser known, interesting aspects of the background of our lives here, where we're headed. If you know where you've been, it's easy to tell where you're headed. If you know what's been done, it's much easier to see what's going to be done. So in this episode, we have to revisit the subject of the relationship between the European Union and the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party and the unholy alliance with the Vatican. So let's get into this deeper subject here. So here we are, syllabus journal entry here. We're going to do another interesting episode. We have a lot of material on this particular um, issue here we need to kind of build um, out of a random selection of different news articles and different video clips that are available I think the world is becoming well aware of the massive persecution that's existing against the the Christians of the world in different areas in the world Africa all over the world uh, there's different populations. Of Christians who are suffering because of their faith at the hands of uh, John militias or Islamic groups, or in Iran where there's an underground church, or in China where people are being arrested and and persecuted. Um, and this is a really a really difficult issue to kind of get into because on, on some level the the Roman Catholic Church stands out there and kind of mouths the words and the issues and and has a lot of. Uh, different priests and archbishops who are going to, different monks who are going to step up and try to speak about the issues of persecution, but at the same time, the actual institution of the Vatican itself historically has been the greatest persecutor of people of religious uh, faith than any other institution in the world, so it's, it's kind of a strange quasi geopolitical institution that, that speaks out of both sides of its mouth so on the one hand you have these different activists in the church who are interested in making sure people of, of religious minorities are not suffering around the world and then on another level you have you know the papacy and you have different orders like the jesuit order who are absolutely committed to making sure that the council of Trent and the the doctrines of uh, anathemas and curses that are laid against all heretics. That's just anyone who doesn't actually join in communion with the Vatican or with the Holy See or with the papacy or, or, or agree that that institution there in Rome is actually the, the Christian church itself. And that's what the Vatican says it is. It says it's the only Christian church in the world and there is no other. And then it's the only legitimate governor and authority in the world and that everyone should obey it. And so if you don't, if you are a Uyghur Muslim, or if you're a Huguenot there in, uh, in, in Europe in the last several centuries, or if you're a, a Waldensian, then you are not allowed to live. You're not allowed to practice your Christian faith as you see fit. You're not allowed to read the scriptures or read them for yourself. You have to have a priest read them in Latin for you and discern discern those and decide you know decipher those scriptures for you. You're not allowed to go to God yourself. You have to go through the priest and the community. And, and through the sacraments that Rome offers to receive religion and re- receive God and, and anyone who doesn't want to do that is considered a heretic and condemned by the Council of Trent. Of course, the Pope uh, swears to uphold the Council of Trent. It's not their open doctrine. This is a secret kind of convoluted background, occult doctrine of the Vatican that, uh, that is at war with anyone who claims that it's a heretic, and so a lot in a lot of ways, uh, in the early 1800s, the Inquisition ended after six centuries of barbarous uh, tortures and burning people at the stake who they considered to be uh, anyone that they condemned. Actually, it was an absolute horrific dictatorship of murder that they had over Europe, um, which defines the Dark Ages. While um, other areas of the world, like the Ottoman Empire or the the uh, the Ming Dynasty, I, I think that's right in China, we're having uh, relative golden ages of prosperity and finding gunpowder and, and making all kind of intellectual developments. And in, in the Ottoman Empire, they were developing uh, algebra. But over in Europe, for many, many, many centuries, they had uh, just the squalor of serfdom because they couldn't seem to get a, a handle around letting people have the freedom of conscience and letting them believe their own beliefs or carry on their own traditions or faiths themselves. And so they just could not intellectually develop as a culture in Europe until. Uh, much later, when the Protestant Reformation took place, and that's how you're going to get into the Enlightenment, to the Renaissance, and to these areas uh, in the world, uh, in, in Venice, or you know, in, in little places in Geneva where the, uh, the, the you still have the ability to think. And ultimately, in 1776, the Protestants and the Puritans and the Patriots in America would break away from the Jesuit controlled King George III and become a, a free nation, at least a republic for a while, anyway. So, what we're really getting into is this, this long argument of history and how it really affects our lives, how we are to define who we are. I mean, we're ultimately saddled with this kind of, that's where this nature of this anti-Americanism comes in uh, from Europe because really we're a Protestant nation, we're a rebel nation, we're a nation who kicked off the, the shackles of servitude to a monarch and decided that we would be our own a sovereign people and we would create our own government and have self-popular government and self-rule and these are ideas that are antithetical to what the program, that the paper because he had uh, in line there choosing kings and building up monarchs and ultimately we'll see that in the uh, in the 18th and 19th century that the Vatican would be um, committed to building up dictators and building up fascism and, and overthrowing regimes and they did this by subtle any means necessary uh, programs where they would, uh, they would author communism with Karl Marx uh, and they would be the men that will be behind Hitler and Stalin. So as we're gonna go through the next few episodes and, and flesh out the dictators that were controlled by the Vatican, we have to talk about what we're dealing with today in our current situation is this relationship that's evolving, where apparently, as the, the, the stakes are going are getting much higher and the politics in America has become totally schizophrenic and our policies are going back and forth, we spend billions on a wall, and now they want to tear a wall down, and just the, the policies are, are actually devastating Because our enemies are sensing our weakness and our inability to self-rule. And so Biden is really a a champion, an asset of of China. And, uh, you know, maybe he has properties there. After he tanks uh, America, maybe he will move there. He'll be a hero of the communist regime there in China. I don't know. But ultimately, um, we can see that the hand of the CCP is stuffed all the way up his pockets uh, to where they're mouthing his words at this point, And all the policies and all the executive orders that you're enforcing or, or the executive orders of Trump that he's taking down are very friendly and empowering China. And they're already making moves on Taiwan and. And we have to look closely at this relationship the relationship between the Vatican and the Communist Chinese Party. And we're, we have a reference here in the news. As I'm scanning through the news and going through all these different articles and listening to all these different sources of information, um, I, I, you begin to hear um, bits and pieces of the information that we're really trying to, to isolate here kind of come out. So what we're discussing here is this, this economic and political relationship between the Chinese Communist Party and the Vatican that's been developing over the last few years. And as everyone else is having a problem with China and being threatened by China, um, and China is using its military might to press in the South China Sea and and to steal technology and to create a military uh, monster over there, apparently the Vatican is, is cozying up very closely and very nicely with the Chinese Communist Party. So, as we're listening, um, we're going to listen to this clip here. It's interesting because um, it's it's a Steve Bannon in the war room. And I have to point out here that we don't agree with all the different authors and, and different researchers and thinkers and teachers and different people that will will we'll put on this program. To, to make a reference, it doesn't mean we necessarily agree with and align ourselves 100% with everything they, they believe or think, but what we're doing is we're using them as our resource to make a checkpoint and to uh, make a reference and flag a certain you know area of information. So, what we're discussing here is this, this kind of persecution that's been ramping up in China against Christian churches and against Muslims and against anybody of faith and how that uh, persecution doesn't seem to be applying to the Vatican. So and there, apparently there's a, an agreement that's coming into, into the news, a, a political concordat, an agreement b- between the Vatican and the Chinese Communist Party. And we need to take a look at what Vatican concordats are and how they've affected history, how they've, you know, how, um, for instance, how there was a Vatican Concord Act between Hitler and the Vatican, and it was also agreements that were being developed between the Confederacy, uh, this is the Civil War now, between the Vatican and the Confederacy with Jefferson Davis. And even though you know the, the Confederacy, they ultimately lost and there was no political agreement to be reached, but it was obvious the Vatican was siding with the Confederacy against the North in, in, in open public terms. So that's a historical reference. Um, so you can see that the Vatican, despite it, its kind of pretensions as a religious church of of um, love and religious harmony, it's really a, a major juggernaut of economic and geopolitical power. And it likes to influence and affect the outcome of wars and and international politics. And in many ways, we can see that the Vatican itself is the shaper and the author and the developer of globalism itself. And uh, institutions like the United Nations uh, and the, the Davos crowd, the G7 formation, um, the World Health Organization—all these kind of global institutions, the International Monetary Fund, the you know World Bank—these are all edifices that were, are being constructed for international purposes uh, and for a, an international global order, which has long been the the design of the Vatican. So we, we're going to take a minute here, listen to um, a little part of this interview with Steve Bannon and as we do we're going to have the uh, the reporter is going to discuss this kind of sinister relationship between China and the Vatican. And even though Steve Bannon is a Catholic, he really is forced to recognize the threat of the, the relationship between the hierarchy in the Vatican and the CCP. And we have to point out that not everyone who is considers themselves a, a Catholic, a faithful, or a parishioner of the Roman Catholic Church necessarily agrees with the kind of bombastic leftist, uh, neo-Marxist politics that comes out of the uh, Vatican. And of course, as we know, uh, Bergoglio, Mario Bergoglio, yeah, Francis I, here, this new pope, is a Jesuit. So he is controlled by those kind of forces, a revolutionary, you know, world changing dynamics that the Jesuits are, are known for, uh, including assassination and, and creating and, and inciting wars between uh, their enemies. And ultimately, their goal and their agenda is to create this papal monarchy and to create this this ultimate high priest, a, a priest king, an ultimate dictator, and a resurgence of a, a Babylonian hierophant, an absolute religious sovereign, and a divine king. And those, these are the kind of principles and ideas um, that they're drawing their, their ancient mystical knowledge uh, from Egypt and from Babylon, and, and, and that's how they're... Uh, as we've discussed often in these episodes, that's how their their mystery traditions have been governed. It's through establishment of an absolute world monarch and, and a world empire. And that's really what the, this is all about. I mean, ultimately setting up the papacy is an infallible, supreme divine king of the world who can, who, you know whose ministry and whose uh, offices of, of ecclesiastical outreach, the world uh, are are the source of the communion wafer that you take in communion so that you can receive the forgiveness of sins and be and 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 so these are the kind of different rites and rituals that the roman catholicism tries to put in place of the biblical scriptural faith christianity that existed before this system of mithraic mystery knowledge and, and gnosticism kind of became the facade of the of the christian church that it pretends to be today So without going into this, and it it really is a complex subject, but what we're trying to isolate in this particular article here is to to find out more about this agreement, this civil concordat, this this governing document and treaty between the, the Chinese Communist Party and the Vatican
1: the Voice of uh, the Martyrs big conference on, on Friday where every day individually we're going to be taking time to look at the persecution of Christians and Jews and other faith-based people throughout the world. You were selected by the President of the United States to be his ambassador on this topic. Can you give people right now just an overview? I think this is the great, as Gaffney tells me, this is the greatest persecution we've ever seen of Christians and Jews and faith-based people in the history of mankind in the mainstream media will not talk about this. You know why? We know what side of the football they're on. So, Ambassador, where do we stand globally with this issue. Well, after the
2: Trump administration, we stand much better than we did before. Uh, We've got an alliance of nearly 40 nations willing to address and push on the topic. Uh, We've got uh, it lifted up uh, in the international bodies that the President of the United States, Donald Trump, for the first time ever went to the UN General Assembly and hosted his big meeting about persecution of people of faith, of Christians and everybody around the world. That had never been done before. We put together international conferences. We had ministerials, foreign ministers from a number of countries, and a hundred countries come together around the topic of international religious freedom. So we're launched on pushing back, but we've got a long way to go because the persecution level is, is really off the charts, and the number of people being killed simply for their faith, number of Christians being killed
1: for their faith, is at an all-time record high. Okay, if you say we have a long way to go, what do you recommend we need to do today, and how can this audience, because this is a global audience, audience of activists right we can we can we can if it's signing up to do this we'll melt down your server right people want to know because they're like sitting there going oh my god i'm having a cup of coffee on saturday i got sam Brownbrook a guy i love and we've known for years his voice he's telling me that the persecution even after trump and all this stuff they did right all this great work the persecution is the highest levels in like world history people's dropping their coffee mugs right now so so when you say that how what do you need to have happen and how do we need to engage people to support you and your work? We, I think we've got to
2: galvanize the faith community in this. And to do that, uh, July 13th to 15th in Washington, D.C. at the Omni Shoreham we're going to pull together the International Religious Freedom Summit wow. 2021. We're going to make it an annual event. And we're going to pull together this faith community that is being persecuted around the world into a force. Of course, in Washington DC and around the world to press this topic on forward. And then I hope people as well locally, I hope they'll get a hold of their congressman, their senator saying, you know, you really got to press on this topic because if the United States doesn't stand aggressively on religious freedom, nobody will. And then finally, we've got to confront China. China is the big enabler of human rights abuses in the world, of religious freedom abuses in the world. They're a big persecutor themselves. But even more than that, Steve, they enable other countries to be able to do it. And we've got to continue this confrontation with China on human rights abuses and across
1: the board. Uh, real, real quickly, your, your score on a scale from 1 to 10, 10 being uh, perfect, 1 being not so hot. Where does the Biden administration, in their first month, where would Sam Bra- Ambassador Sam Brownback, one of the most decent, honest guys out there, not a partisan hack, but a decent, not a partisan hack like Bannon, a decent, hardworking guy that is, puts the country first and the faith based community first? Where would Sam Brownback, Ambassador Sam Brown Brownback, rate the Biden administration? I I would put it just as unknown right now. We just haven't
2: seen any uh, actions uh, taken from... I am hopeful they're going to
1: take this topic on and continue uh, what uh, President Trump did. We just don't know, Steve. Sam Brasso brownberg says incomplete. Bannon says one. Gaffney, what did he say? I'd say they're AWOL, and that's not just It can't be incomplete. AWOL, and AWOL means a zero.
3: Absolutely. And, and let me Beck, just say, yeah. Sam Brownback, with FEMS' considerable help, did a remarkable job of helping to Amen. elevate this whole Amen. issue. Amen. The ministerial meetings that you convened, Sam, uh, with Pompeo and, and the president and so on, were unbelievably important, and I'm sure the summit will be as well. I, I just want to say, if you want action... One of the things that we've called for, and Sam was helpful to us right at the get-go of the Save the Persecuted Christian Coalition, is two things. Hold the persecutors accountable. Yep. And create costs to them for their persecution.
1: There aren't any right now, believe it or not. They've had 30 days. They've had the transition. Where do you rate them? Zero. He's got stuff out of that mic. What? Yeah, uh, I see. He's saying, hey, they're getting incomplete right now. They've had 30 days. They've had the transition. Where do you rate them? Zero. You've got to step of that mic. What?
4: Yeah, uh, two things. One, uh, just. What do you recently, mean zero? Well, just recently the president said the uh, mistreatment of Uyghurs was a cultural thing. Cultural, cultural norm. Yeah. It's not cultural to kill people and have forced sterilization. That, uh, that is an
1: insult from Joe Biden to the Chinese people and the greatest civilizations on earth. The Lao Beijing should be up in arms and then say, hey, what are you talking about? It's not our norm. The most decent, hardworking people on earth and you're saying that's a norm for this persecution. Remember, this express newspaper said it. She fears the 300 million Christians, evangelical house Christians, and underground Catholic Church. He doesn't fear the American government, obviously. He doesn't even fear the U.S. military anymore of everything they've stolen. Doesn't fear NATO. Doesn't fear the the city of London does not fear Wall Street. The global corporations are in business with him. Doesn't fear the party of Davos. They're his partners. You know he fears in this entire earth? Christian Lao Beijing Working class, underground Chinese people. He knows that's the threat. They said it's a threat. This is why the persecuted church in Rome became the became the leading part of Christianity. More than Jerusalem, more than Antioch, more than Corinth. Why? Because of the intense persecution. It is the Chinese Christians, just like in Eastern Europe and Russia, showed us the way through the Cold War, they're going to be the leaders, not just their freedom, they're going to be the leaders in Christianity globally. Why? Because they've seen the boot of a vicious, materialistic dictator that's trying to eradicate it. Our next guest knows this, right? D.D. Logason? D.D. Logason is the uh, Executive Secretary of the
3: Committee on the Present Day in China, and... The executive director wow. of another terrific group, the Save the Persecuted Christians, which I have the privilege of heading up, she—that's inextricably linked. She, right? They are inextricably linked. linked, and that's the point, Steve. Yeah. What we're talking about right now, yeah. especially in yeah. the aftermath of, yeah. the, of the Chinese Communist Party
1: saying the hell with the Pope yeah. and the deal we struck with him. This is where she comes in, Dee Dee. And here's the good news, ladies and gentlemen, in our audience, Dee Dee is young, and she's in CPAC. She's down there. So tell us, first off, without uh, a mask Without a mask. Tell us your work, Dee Dee. With Action Boost, they get a bl- uh, thing. The, 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 I don't want to have her arrested a I don't want to get her bounced. Let's not get her bounced. Okay, God, Pam, you're such a troublemaker. This is so so Palin esque. Um, the Dee uh, Dee, tell us about your work for uh, for the persecuted Christians and against the Chinese Communist Party.
4: Absolutely. Hi, Steve. Hi, Frank. Um, You know, there are 340 million Christians around the world who suffered heavy persecution throughout last year. Uh, That's a historic number. It's been historic since 2018 when there were 215 million. Those numbers are going up year by year. The persecution of Christians globally is getting worse, and we are starting to see it happen even here in our own land in America.
3: That's more just for calibration purposes. That's, that's more than the number of American citizens we have. Think about it.
1: Yes, more than the population of yeah, the United States.
3: Right? Yeah,
4: for every man, woman, and child in the United States, there is a, a Christian out there suffering daily, not knowing if they're going to make it through the day.
1: Wow! So give us the hot. And
4: China is one of the worst persecutors of Christians.
1: Okay, for our audience right now, I want to walk through the, the
4: underground bay. churches in.
1: I want to walk through the big hotspots. Go ahead. Take us through the big hotspots of the world. You say 340 million. Our audience, where's our audience focused? They're being persecuted the most.
4: Nigeria has a raging uh, jihad against Christians right now. Uh, Christians are being killed, slaughtered in the most horrific ways, and nobody is making any hay about Nigeria. Also, in Pakistan, you have the uh, Muslims going against uh, Hindus and Christians on a regular basis. In India, you have the Hindus going against the Muslims and the Christians. And in China, you have uh, the communists coming after people of all faith. It doesn't matter what faith you're, you practice. Uh, children are no longer allowed to learn their faith or, or to uh, worship at all. So within a generation, China looks to wipe out faith uh, a- across the land completely. And they're doing it right now with the Uyghurs. There's a genocide of, um, of Falun Gong as well, an organ genocide. Last year, the tribunal out of the U.K., said that what China is doing with their organ harvesting industry is, crim- so China is a criminal organization, the CCP is a criminal organization committing atrocious crimes against its own people and people in other lands as well, and they must be taken to account. The Vatican is hand in glove with the CCP in the persecution of Christians. The underground churches are being raised and they're being dragged out of their homes, and their pastors and priests are being thrown into prison. And the, and the CCP has no respect for the Vatican's deal that they made with them, which is a secret deal. We have no idea what the provisions of that deal are.
0: So we just want to just put a pin in it just right there because it's this secret deal. It's this this treaty between the Vatican and the Chinese Communist Party that I really want to zoom in on here. And there's a lot of people discussing it, but you really can't find good anything in the media that's really solid that really can kind of clue us in on to what is has been happening there. You can see that the Vatican's special secret deal, it's been spoken about in the press to some extent, uh, discussing that they're really preoccupied with making sure that they can place the bishops in the hierarchical rank and the order over the, the, the churches and over the pastors and just being in control of the ecclesiastical layout of who's in charge in, in the priesthood of that particular church. That, that the, the bishop's agreement is about allowing the uh, Rome, the Vatican, to be the one to bless or coronate or send uh, the distinguished prelate chosen by the Vatican and not chosen by the CCP. And, and so that's the kind of nature of the agreement is the nature of the soul. Soul of the actual, the beast there. And so going forward, defining the will of the spiritual church of the place will either be the CCP or the Vatican as they struggle over how to define the meaning of that. And it's a question of the underground church and where they'll go and what happens to them and they're really just not allowed to exist if they won't bend the knee to the CCP Vatican agreement. So as we're going forward, we need to recognize the extreme danger here and what's really happening worldwide and it endangers not only these particular people of of faith who have this conscience, they have this objection, they have this hold to a particular scriptural truth that they will not let go of and so that inability for them to relent, their whole their uh, grasp of the truth makes them unable to be to be molded and controlled and formed, and, and therefore they're dangerous. Their ideological standing makes them unfit to exist in a world that's an absolute communist uh, autocracy um, that's being influenced by the Vatican, and we have to examine this relationship between the Vatican, specifically the Vatican City, which is, is, is its own nation. as We'll get to as we move along through these. Particular articles that we'll introduce, is that the Vatican City itself is really its own nation. It has its own sovereign standing as far as printing money and, and having its own passports and it's having its own pomp and circumstance that's required. So the Vatican City within Rome, which is an international city, within Italy, which is a state that's signer to the Treaty of the Rome Treaty. And the Treaty of Rome is the original agreement of the European states that set into motion the European economic zone over the there and brought about later on the EU. So, you have to recognize that Italy is one of the primary signers, obviously, of the Treaty of Rome, which began the European Union, and the impetus behind uh, Italy is its international city of Rome and its state within a state, its imperium and imperio within the, the Vatican City, which has the sovereign king of the world, the Pope, over there, who is now you know using the power of his office to make these agreements with the Chinese Communist Party about the future of the Uyghurs. Obviously, the Uyghurs are heretics, so they're contrary to the Council of Trent. They can be safely destroyed by good religion, and you have to just go back to St. Thomas Aquinas, and you have to go back and look at St. Augustine and to the different theologians of the Roman Catholic Church to discover that they had no problem destroying people who would not bend the knee or say the words or believe as they told them to believe. And particularly, the, the papacy itself is this mouth, this great mouth of derision, that requires the world to submit to this notion that he is the vicar of Christ and sits in the, the seat of Christ and the office of Christ in the world. It's just simply a lie. And just like December 25th is not the birthday of Jesus. Jesus wasn't born on December 25th, and Christmas, it's a lie. And so you can continue to, it's got the lights and the candy and the candy canes, and it's just so pretty. But you can you can, you can know participate if you want, but you have to recognize that it, it's a lie. And in order to help us orient, I just have this article by uh, that's in justthenews.com, and its the headline is: the European Union may implement vaccine passports in the next few months. Digital vaccine pa- certification may be Europe-wide before the summer. The European Union, over the next several months, will likely implement a vaccine passport system in which in- individuals may be required to confirm their COVID vaccination status while traveling through the nation's member states. During a virtual EU summit this week, everyone agreed that we need a digital vaccination certificate, German Chancellor Angela Merkel said. The rule, she argued, would not mean that only those who have a vaccination passport are allowed to travel, quote-unquote, leaving uncertain how enforcement of such a policy would be played out. So, that's just an interesting caveat to, to add into this whole discussion because they're the forefront on taking advantage, a technotronic advantage of this COVID that came out of these Wuhan labs. And remember, Wuhan is the only High level lab in China that can contain viruses and bacteria and, and these kind of pathogens that are so dangerous. And now it's coming out of the news and it really can't be repressed anymore the fact that this whole thing began with the Wuhan labs. So the EU's taken full advantage of it. And behind the EU is this powerful religio cultic institution, this, you know, Roman religion that masquerades as the, uh, the scriptural Church of Jesus Christ and really exists to play out the the mysticism and the arcane mystery, knowledge of the, the Gnostics and previously of the Pagans. And so you can see how all these different Zoroastrian and Mithraic traditions and the programs of Babylonian holidays like December 25th are just instilled and institutionalized and ingrained so deeply into the dogma of the Vatican and their church empire that they don't really have any other way of, uh, of changing that. And so anyone who won't submit, just like how it was with the Caesars, anyone who say Caesar is king and submit has to die and so that's how it is with the church anyone who won't say Pope is the vicar of Christ on earth anybody who won't you know say that that the Pontifex Maximus is the legitimate head of of God's church on earth, then they're just a heretic, and heretics have to be burned and condemned and corrected. You have to correct heretics, so you have these little heretical correctors that run around, and that's what you have. You have this building of a dogma, and that's why on the left it's become so religious that you have to say you are, you're you're white, you're evil because of your skin color. You're, you have these you know this kind of racial politics kind of sets in, and it, it does its malicious work on everyone and, and you know people are trying to maintain their own mind while all this idea virus this kind of ideological mind control and propaganda seeps through the, the, the news networks and your, your sports channels, ESPN, and every every movie now has to have a reference to this leftism. And so, you, you know, and really, ultimately, people who are going to be people of the book, who are going to be people of the scriptures, who read about Moses and Abraham and the history and the legacy, there were just so many thousands of years old, the promises to the people of Israel, the promises about their city and about their children and their future. And to kind of, to see all that being politicized and to become the anti-Semitism across, even in New York City and just across the world is just becoming so blatant and so apparent. And I think that people are rejecting the God of the Bible and the God of Israel, and they're glomming on to this new world churchianity. In back in the dark ages, in the middle ages, they used to claim that Protestants and people like John Huss and people who read the scriptures and believed and denied Rome and believed the, the values and the promises of God in the scriptures, they used to say that they had a paper pope and that the, uh, the real church of God had to have a living, breathing pope, someone they could see, someone they could handle, who, who would walk around and officiate the uh, offices and the dignities of Jesus Christ in his absence. And of course, the people in the Reformation in the past pointed at that individual and said that he was Antichrist. And so we have to recognize that this particular individual exists today, this Pontifex Maximus. This individual exists here in in Rome today in the international city, in the nation of Italy, and wielding the power of the European Union and controlling Germany and really going after this COVID vaccine passport. And you can see where they'll they'll go with that. And, And really behind the scenes, behind the curtains, the Pope is making secret deals and concordats. With the Chinese Communist Party and the European Union is starting to make economic and financial deals with China as we're decoupling from China, getting our energy interdependence and getting our military strength built up so that we can remain the preeminent nation in the world. China and the European Union are starting to couple together and starting to unite and join together. So we need to examine that. It's not unknown that China is working with Russia and other uh, nations aligned against the banks and the energy of the West. And so as the European Union begins to side with China, it leaves very few allies on the world stage, maybe Britain, um, maybe Switzerland. I mean, really, as the whole body of the European Union becomes unified with this leftist Communist propaganda and this technocracy And they mask everybody up And, they, and they're and they going to make everyone take a vaccine And have a vaccine document and, and it'll be a whole new level of New world order control over people's lives And their privacy and it's almost like A new 9-11, a new Pearl Harbor And they're going to take full advantage of it And here in, in the West it leaves America alone With just Joe Biden and maybe A, a, a shot at you know Another Trump situation I mean that tr- the Trump failure is, is such a huge Betrayal of the American people politically that it really seems to be the Invisible College had written the book *Becoming the Insurrection*, and it just seems that that was set up so perfectly. And it's hard to deny that that Antifa had their guys in the crowd with the Trump hats on backwards. And they, uh, and Nancy Pelosi had the, the police there who let the, them in and waved them in, and it was just a fait accompli, it was an insurrection, and they'll just use that forever, even though the people that went to the rally never went to the Capitol, didn't even know what happened. So Trump kind of just seems complicit, I don't know if he would, didn't know what was happening or, or what, but you know that needs to be a recompense and dealt with, and it's, it's just so horrifying. So even though you know it, it really just becomes Trump's legacy. I mean, I, you know, even though we you know, people want to love him politically and they want to support him, it just it was so staged like that that it makes it suspicious to my mind. But as we're going forward, we need to examine how the European Union is here working very closely with China and their new trade deals. And as America is falling away and, and separating from China in many ways, I guess not so much now with Biden here. Maybe he can you know push us back over into. The China column but in a lot of ways politically the people the industry the, the you know the men and women of America the police the, the people of America themselves are decoupling within themselves from this idea of the CCP so we have to look at this interesting article from American thought leaders like many of the other materials we use to make a reference and to, to use as documentation for these episodes we have to point out that they're discussing what's happening in a rational setting where we're discussing the, the political, Environment and the landscape of geopolitical relationships, and they're really not meaning to discuss, particularly this particular subject that I'm going after. That you know, but I'm trying to isolate this relationship between the European Union and China. And so, since they have to discuss that because of the things that are happening in the news, we'll be able to flesh out and build our case and really look more deeply into what's happening behind the scenes with this Concordat. And uh, we'll have to you know go into a history of these. Uh, Political treaties and these relationships that the Vatican builds with different dictators and different regimes around the world. So, in order to get into this, this is going to be Benedict Rogers, and it's the episode called 83 Global Brands Tied to Forced Labor in China. And where I'm coming from is that forced labor is is slavery. That's what it is. And Chinese slavery has happened for a long time. They used to have the Chinamen who would build the railroad tracks in the West and so long ago when there was the race to build the railroads they used Chinese forced labor then so the whole tradition of just utilizing manpower um, in an imperial way is something that China has a long tradition of doing but as we look at this, these details we have to recognize that the religious and geopolitical unification between the European Union, the Vatican and the CCP
5: in China we're seeing forced televised confessions, a mass surveillance state, the killing of Falun Gong practitioners for their organs, and what many are calling a genocide of the Uyghur people. These are the worst possible crimes. 83 global brands, including major U.S. companies, are tied to Uyghur forced labor in China. We've had our heads in the sand for too long. Over in Hong Kong, 53 pro-democracy activists, lawmakers, and lawyers were arrested on January 6th under the draconian national security law. Today, there is no freedom in Hong Kong. Despite all this, the EU recently announced a major trade deal with China. Today we sit down with human rights activist and writer Benedict Rogers, founder of Hong Kong Watch and deputy chair of the UK Conservative Party's Human Rights Commission. We discuss the Commission's new report, The Darkness Deepens. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kellic. Benedict Rogers, it's so great to have you back on American Thought Leaders.
6: Thank you. It's a great privilege to be with you again.
5: Ben. You've put out this incredible report, The Darkness Deepens. Frankly, um, it's one of the most comprehensive reports on human rights uh, in China that I've come across. And this is a follow-up from your report four years ago that the Conservative Party Human Rights Commission put out, uh, The Darkest Moment. Incredible work. I mean, that's, for starters, that I, I, I have to say that. Um, why don't you tell me briefly what were the key, most important findings in your mind? I think the, uh, the key findings are that in the last four years since that previous inquiry and report, firstly, the situation across the board has
6: deteriorated uh, dramatically further. Uh, And I almost didn't think that was possible because, as you've just said, the report four years ago was called The Darkest Moment. In other words, the situation was pretty terrible then. Uh, But across the board, things have worsened significantly. Uh, We've seen the dismantling of of democracy and freedoms in Hong Kong. We see what uh, people are increasingly recognizing as a genocide of the Uyghurs. Uh, But those two issues have had quite a lot of attention and deservedly so. But what we found is that the situation for Christians, for Falun Gong practitioners, for the situation in Tibet, uh, for human rights defenders, bloggers, uh, uh, lawyers, uh, across the board, uh, the situation has has worsened significantly. That's the main finding. But also I think the Chinese Communist Party regime is finding new and increasingly brutal forms of repression. So the growth of... uh, Surveillance technology uh, uh, is one example. Uh, the use of forced labor, uh, which we call modern-day slavery, probably was going on before, but but is certainly much more extensive now. Uh, and the use of uh,
5: forced televised confessions uh, and the increasing number of arrests that, of foreign nationals. So it shows that no one is safe uh, from the long arm of the CCP. It's not just... Uh, nationals of of the PRC, but foreign nationals that have been arrested and are jailed, disappeared, uh, forced to confess on national television. It seems to me like the Chinese Communist Party is taking advantage of this chaotic situation around the U.S. election to do some bad stuff, so to speak, and... You know, one of these things is this mass arrest of uh, pro-democracy politicians on the 6th. Um, Actually, four uh, guests from this show were among those that were arrested that day. Um, Why don't you tell me what you think about this, what the realities are, and how things have come since the 6th? Well, yes, uh, the mass arrests of uh,
6: 53 Pro-democracy uh, activists were the the single largest uh, uh, swoop by the Hong Kong police of of uh, activists in Hong Kong, you know, in recent memory. Obviously, there have been quite a number of other arrests in previous months, but uh, there's been nowhere near as as large a number in one in one morning. Uh, and essentially, what they're charged with is nothing more than the crime in inverted commas of having uh, dared to carry out a democratic exercise. Uh, they they uh, either were candidates or organisers or pollsters uh, in uh, a primary election, something that uh, in the United States is an absolute norm, um, but a primary election to choose the candidates for the pro-democracy camp in what should have been the elections to the legislature in Hong Kong. The elections to the legislature were of course subsequently postponed using the excuse of the pandemic but uh, now these these uh, individuals have been uh, arrested charged with subversion under the national security law for having carried out that exercise in the last summer to
5: choose their candidates i want to just briefly recap this national security law seems to give the chinese communist party well actually the hong kong government with the the Chinese Communist Party kind of standing behind it, virtually carte blanche to do whatever it wants. Absolutely, it it is probably the most uh, draconian and vaguely worded and uh, extensive uh, repressive law that that I've really
6: ever seen. Um, it, it's uh, uh, some of, some of the concepts that it criminalises. Things like collusion with foreign political forces—that basically means it's now a crime for a person in Hong Kong to talk to a foreign politician, uh, foreign media, someone like me, a foreign activist. Um, uh, acts of subversion are interpreted as, for example, carrying out uh, a primary election to choose candidates, uh, and um, uh, or, or any really any form of criticism of uh, the regime in Beijing. And, and crucially, this law also has an extraterritorial uh, clause in it, which in principle essentially says that uh, it doesn't matter if you're a Hong Konger or not, and it doesn't matter where you are in the world. Uh, anyone, a- anywhere in the world can breach the national security law. Now, obviously, enforcing that for foreigners outside Hong Kong uh, is uh, you know, it's probably not very practical, at least in uh, the Western world, but it does make Hong Kongers who are In other parts of the world much more vulnerable if they want to go back
5: to Hong Kong. So bottom line now let's so let's look at the difference from four years ago how has Hong Kong changed bottom line?
6: Bottom line is it's changed massively four years ago freedom was under pressure there were signs of erosion and worrying signs of erosion today there is no freedom in Hong Kong
5: Let's jump to the second issue that that we discussed. Um, You mentioned this uh, modern-day slavery, forced labor. You know, um, I recently produced a film, uh, a Holocaust documentary, which involved us going to to Europe. And one of the things I discovered, which I hadn't realized, actually, uh, entirely, was how important the slave labor of the Jewish people was to the Nazi war machine so to speak, to the functioning of the Nazi war machine. It's just kind of a something that seems to be glossed over because of the horrors of the Holocaust, right? Um, but I saw that this is something that's new in your report. You didn't have a section on modern-day slavery in the previous report. Why is this figuring in so prominently now? Well, I think that uh, a lot more evidence has come to light,
6: uh, and I think uh, the use of uh, slave labor uh, uh, is much more extensive, uh, has been much more extensive over the last few years, and crucially, it's uh, it, it's featuring a, a very significant role in the supply chains of uh, at least 83 or more uh, international uh, brand uh, companies, um, companies that uh, consumers will all be familiar with uh, throughout the Western world. And and you're right to make the connection with the Holocaust, because what's very significant about this situation, is that actually among uh, religious communities speaking out on the Uyghur situation, it's actually been the Jewish community that has been taking a a lead. The uh, former uh, chief rabbi in in my country, the United Kingdom, the current chief rabbi, the president of the Board of Deputies of British Jews, um, the Jewish news newspaper, and and other uh, Jewish groups, have really been
5: um, courageous in making the comparison with the Holocaust, which is a very rare and sensitive thing for the Jewish community to do, but they've been doing it. Well, so why don't you tell me briefly why that is, uh, and I mean, of course, we know some of this, but why is that apt in your mind?
6: Well, I think it's it's very apt because... uh, all the, or many of the hallmarks uh, of the Holocaust are there. Not not only the slave labour, but uh, uh, evidence of a campaign of forced sterilisation, uh, scenes of uh, people with their heads shaved being loaded onto trains, um, and of course uh, the extensive uh, concentration camps uh, in the Xinjiang region, where it's said that at least a million, perhaps as many as three million. Uh, are incarcerated, are uh, severely tortured, subjected to sexual violence uh, and, and uh, other abuses. And so the parallels really are, are there with, uh, with things that
7: we haven't seen on that scale for a very long time. Of course, we've seen, sadly,
6: other genocides uh, over the years and other uh, massive, plenty of other mass atrocities in different parts of the world. But I don't think we've seen anything quite as extensive as this for, for a long time.
5: Well, yeah, and a Canadian uh, parliamentary committee uh, came up with a genocide designation for what is happening there in Xinjiang to the Uyghur people. Um, and I think the, and the State Department in the U.S. is also considering that as we speak. Um, something that comes to mind when it comes to Xinjiang is, uh, I guess, the importance or the use of surveillance technology. Um, this is something that also figures prominently in your report, and again, this is something that I would love to, you know, compare today to four years ago. If you could actually, if you could do that, because it seems to be such a, well, I guess, a central issue that might not necessarily be obvious uh, to people and playing a, a key role in this repression that we just discussed. Absolutely, I, I think that. Um... It was beginning
6: to develop uh, a few years ago, but you're correct that it didn't really feature in our previous report, Uh, and and that shows that it has rapidly developed in the last few years. Um, Key to the development of this have been the Chinese uh, tech companies, uh, well-known brands like uh, Huawei and Hikvision that uh, are directly complicit with uh, creating this Orwellian surveillance state. Uh, And the um, extent of the technology uh, is is terrifying. The the use of uh, of facial recognition technology, of uh, of drones, uh, uh, and other you know artificial intelligence. But that's also combined with more traditional forms of of surveillance that also continue the use of informants, uh, the um, uh, uh, pattern of of the CCP sending. Uh, uh, CCP officials, Han Chinese officials, uh, to live in the houses of Uyghurs, those Uyghurs that aren't in the prison camps, uh, to monitor them t- 24 hours a day. So these sort of crude, traditional forms of um, of, of personal surveillance, mixed with uh, the use of use and development of technology, and the fact that uh, companies that are well known globally now, thankfully, many Western democracies are waking up to the dangers of Of Huawei and the others, but uh, there's many countries that haven't woken up to that, and we should uh, not forget that these companies are directly at the heart of
5: this surveillance state. Well, and presumably this technology, uh, you know, whether it's Hikvision or Huawei, you know, it's not just deployed in China and presumably can be used exactly the same way elsewhere.
6: That's exactly right. I mean... Firstly, uh, the regime is, of course, uh, uh, transferring this technology to other uh, brutal dictatorships, so that poses a danger in other repressive states, but, of course, it can use that technology in Western free societies, and that poses
5: a direct threat to, to, to our freedoms. You know, ben, this is one of the things, and I, I asked this question of uh, uh, Secretary Pompeo in a recent interview um, and he was, you know, a more bullish on this than I am personally. But we have this EU-China trade deal that's, as, as far as I can tell, moving full steam ahead, unless there's some kind of block in the European Council or something like that that occurs. I don't know if that's going to happen. And uh, with the knowledge that all of these realities are happening... And, you know, that that has me kind of scratching my head. How is How does this work, given, you know, even just the few realities that you laid out to me?
6: Yeah, it, it has me scratching my head as well, particularly as um, the announcement came just a few days after the European Parliament passed a resolution uh, that called for uh, access to Xinjiang to inspect the camps. It called for sanctions, uh, targeted sanctions on those responsible for the uh, atrocities uh, uh, against the Uyghurs, uh, and it called crucially for any um, further investment deal to uh, have protections for uh, labour rights and and labour standards. Uh, And just a few days later, the EU went ahead with this deal with none of those things. Um, And then, of course, uh, the other thing that happened just, I, I forget the exact time frame, but just a matter of uh, days beforehand uh, uh was the the uh, uh arrest of the 53 in in hong kong so uh the the general and, and and also it it was a decision made when the us is in transition and you would have thought the eu as an ally of the united states would uh, would not uh sort of undermine either the relationship with the existing administration in its final days or undercut the uh the new administration before it's had a chance to make its position clear and so for all those reasons it was an extraordinary decision for the EU to rush into and it's been roundly condemned by uh, including by people like uh, Chris Patton, the last governor of Hong Kong who is a former uh, uh, EU commissioner as well as being the last governor of Hong Kong he, he's usually not a critic of the EU he's he's one of the people in British politics who's you know who's very much a supporter of the EU, but he uh, made comments that were
0: uh, quite rightly, extremely critical. So with the collapse of the Trump administration and right in this period of confusion, the European Union is getting ready to set vaccine passports certificates so that anyone who wants to travel, to the European Union has to have a vaccine passport. And they're moving very quickly at about face to go run over to China to make an enormous, huge quadrillion dollar trade deal with China. Right as Biden seems to be suffering from some kind of stroke, he looks like he has Alzheimer's and I think he's bumping into a wall over there. Uh, they, I guess they have this lightweight kind of freakazoid. Uh, Harris is going to go to the upcoming G8 summit or whatever that is. I I don't know. I don't really keep tabs on all that, but there's going to be a world, a summit of leaders. It's going to come together and they'll probably have to send Harris because he is uh, totally brain dead and it's, it really serves him right. But Trump is over there in Florida. I think um we have to think about what's gonna happen next in two thousand and twenty two and going forward. But really you have to recognize that the European Union had that they've staked out their ally here. This is the new axis here. They're they're over there with you know, Angela Merkel's got the pipeline from Putin for gas and and the EU has rushed over there to make this huge trade deal so they can import all this Chinese crap into their country and allow the tyranny of their their technocracy, their their cyber state, their police state, their surveillance police state that they have everyone under, and uh, they they have sided with the prison camps, and they have sided with the takedown of Hong Kong and the the flyover missile, the missile flyover missions over Taiwan that threaten world stability. So we're looking at World War III here with the belligerence and the emergence of the CCP and their their navy. And over there we have Russia with the European Union and it's a huge confederacy They're joined as an entire continent if you think about it and over here we we have Canada so we need to like take a, a closer look we have this uh, another interesting little article we'll just introduce it's a brief one I know some of these uh, but I really want to play the whole section I don't want to have little 30 second clips I, you know this isn't just a hit job these are these are we're laying out a historical case here I want to ha- give these speakers time to really say their entire part and to so you get the full context of what they're discussing and the background and so you can really as we arrive to the point that we're trying to make so as we go forward here we're going to look at another little piece here and it's gary bauer and james carr china committing genocide and Xinjiang, and so let's listen to this this uh interesting discussion here
5: gary tell me how exactly what are sort of the elements in this specific case of uh, the Uyghur people that bring together this argument for genocide?
8: Well, there, there's been the mass movement of Uyghur Muslims out of their homes. Uh, before that even happened, there was a level of, um, of surveillance uh, to, down to the kind of detail that, again, I, I think most Americans would be astonished by. Um, the, the Chinese uh, Chinese Communists have organized uh, a surveillance state that really is, and it's a it's a worn out phrase, but there's no better way to describe it than than Orwellian. Uh, in many Chinese communist cities, it's organized down to the block level. So your neighbor may be spying on you but even when your neighbor's not spying on you uh, there are now hundreds of millions of surveillance cameras employing artificial intelligence all over communist China and uh, they can pick up things as simple as uh, are you talking to your neighbors as much as you used to because if you're not talking to them as much as you used to maybe you're up to no good um If you used to leave your house by the front door, are you now more frequently leaving your house by the back door? Which could be evidence that you're trying to hide your movements. So there's all this surveillance going on. And then there's monitoring of the Uyghur children in school where you have communist Chinese teachers asking those children probing questions about what their their parents or grandparents may be up to in the house. What are they teaching you? Are they telling you that your religion is more important uh, than the nation of China or more important than Chinese communism? Uh, then we began to see the forcible relocation uh, of, whole China, uh, of whole Uyghur families or uh, the taking of Uyghur men, particularly, out of the household. We even have reports that members of the Chinese Communist Party have been put into Uyghur households. To spy on the families. Uh, again, unimaginable in the 21st century. And, and then we have this euphemism, which quite frankly is is uh, right out of the Nazi playbook uh, of setting up what essentially are concentration camps, but, but calling them uh, work uh, centers or educational centers where uh, the Chinese Uyghurs will Will be taught skills that help them have a better chance of succeeding in Chinese communist society. Well, that better hope of succeeding is forget your religion and adopt the Chinese communist way, or you won't be able to have a life to live at all. So it's all of those things, uh, things that. Uh, I would hope any American community would would bristle against, uh, but it's happening on a scale that's that's unimaginable, and, and it really, you know, it really is the modern day equivalent uh, of what we saw happen in Germany in the nineteen thirties, and then spread with Nazism as uh, it conquered a good bit of Europe.
5: Well, you know, it's very interesting. I've always avoided having a Holocaust survivor in my family um uh on my wife's side uh i've always avoided that connection because you know it was it was such an extreme case but lately i've just been thinking you know this regime in so many ways mirrors Things that even I learned about in a film I produced, as, uh, learning you know deeper about what happened during the Holocaust, about my father-in-law. Um, it, it's an amazing connection, and even Jewish leaders in the UK I've learned have you know taken the step of basically saying it's it's reasonable, like you said, to make this comparison to to Nazi Germany and and the Holocaust. Uh, uh, and hence, earnings. So a couple of things I think we covered. There's this forced sterilization to reduce the population. There were some other methods they're using to kind of basically prevent uh, Uyghur births.
8: Right. I'm not sure I know all the details, but I know they are regularly checking uh, whether Uyghur women are pregnant or not. And there are for, there are reports, and there have been in the past of of forced abortions. Um, Look, uh, you know, in America we have a big debate about pro-life, pro-choice, and so forth. Uh, I I don't think anybody in the United States, uh, uh, no matter where they are on that debate, would ever be in favor of forced abortions. Uh, That's something that one can only imagine in what increasingly is a a totalitarian society. and for forced abortions to be done on the basis uh, of trying to eliminate a particular uh, ethnic group or racial group is, is so beyond the pale, so much into the realm of pure evil, uh, that, that I think, again, we're, it's very hard for uh, Americans, uh, e- even in a country right now that has, as we do, our own challenges, uh, to imagine that uh, a rising power like Communist China, a country that uh, whose military is getting stronger every day, who is projecting that power uh, around the world, uh, who is selling their uh, surveillance cameras now to several hundred countries around the world. Uh, that ought to be disturbing to, again, anybody that believes in the innate human dignity, value, and worth uh,
5: of every human being you know it, it, it's truly remarkable. Uh, the, the, the part that is also connects this whole thing to me to Germany in the you know, 30s and 40s is the business that's being done by American companies all over the world multinationals and so forth in China, and you even have you know, the EU ready to sign a trade deal amidst all of these realities. Um, and it, I, I actually just saw uh, uh, a compilation by one of our journalists of how much money is simply invested uh, directly into Chinese companies, some of which are, you know, have serious national security implications even for the US and so forth. It's staggering up to billions of dollars.
8: It is. And uh, look, over the years, one of the issues I've spent a great deal of time on uh, is anti-Semitism. And I've I've, been a, I've tried to be a very uh, good friend to the American Jewish community and be uh, uh, an advocate against anti-Semitism, whether it's here in the United States or it's anyplace else. So I don't likely, just like you, I don't likely throw around words like genocide. Uh, but it, it fits in this case. And you, you mentioned you know, the phrase never again. That phrase meant that never again will uh, a country be allowed to do that to a whole group of people. But never again, I think, also meant uh, never again will free men and women uh, look the other way when it's being done or cooperate with a nation that uh, is engaged in this. And I I, I have to say, you know, I'm a big sports fan, probably because I was never good enough to play sports myself. I love watching people um, succeed in athletics. And uh, we've seen a lot of American athletes, you know, become voices for social justice here in the United States. But I'm still reeling from a couple of years ago when uh, uh, a coach or Uh, an owner of one of the NBA teams, uh, uh, sided with Hong Kong against Mainland Communist China. Communist China, of course, went berserk and threatened the NBA. And it was astonishing to me to see these multi-million dollar American basketball players dreaming of becoming even more wealthy by having an MBA equivalence, you know, uh, be established in communist China. And and to this day, I don't see uh, American corporations that are eager to, to, to signal their far social justice here in the United States, and then they turn around and they're building more factories in communist China. They're doing work in the very province where the Uyghur Muslim camps are set up. I watch a company like Walt Disney uh, that does uh, one of their very popular movies, and at the end of the movie, uh, in which they did some of the filming in communist China, uh, they not only thanked the Chinese government, they, they thanked the police force in the province that has the responsibility of persecuting, among other things, the Uyghur Muslims. So the, the phrase never again is looking more and more as as a Uh, it's a phrase of mockery to uh, significant powerful portions of American society. But I condemn American business uh, to the extent that they are willing to do business in a country like communist China. And by doing business in a country like communist China, not only contribute to the persecution of the Chinese people of all faiths, uh, to the violation of human rights in China at a scale almost unmatched around the world, but they are also helping to make communist China more economical, more militarily powerful, in a way that will jeopardize the national security of the people of the United States and the people of the other western democracies. So proud that I I took on that position. I remember a presidential debate I was in uh, in 2000 uh, with then uh, uh, George W. Bush before uh, he was elected president. We were in a Republican presidential debate. And one of the things we got into a heated exchange about was most favored nation status about China for China. And uh, George W. Bush turned to me and he said, Gary, we must do business with the entrepreneurial class in communist China, although I think he just said, in China, Uh, and he said, if we will do that, if we will do business with that entrepreneurial class, you'll be shocked at how quickly uh, freedom will come to China. Only is freedom not arriving in China. Uh, Oppression under President Xi is greater now in many, many ways than it was uh, when we thought, 20 some years ago that trade with China would change them when in fact it's changed us. That has indeed declared war on religious faith. The the Chinese communists cannot tolerate anyone in communist China having a loyalty to something that they see as higher than the Chinese communists. And, And so it's a competition to them. And it's uh, it's a threat. It's something that keeps the Chinese Communists uh, awake at night. So we've actually got now uh, things that I I didn't think I would ever see in a country that has the sort of great history that that China has, history that goes back thousands of years. But they're actually taking President Xi and and they're trying to to, to have him replace the most revered religious figures of various faiths in communist China. So churches are being told to take down uh, artistic renderings of Jesus, for example, and to replace them with, with photos of President Xi. Uh, there's an effort underway in China to, uh, I don't know if it's cynicize or cynicize, uh, uh the Bible by re- writing the Bible so that it's more consistent with Chinese communism than it is with the Christ, Christian gospel. Well, that's that's sacrilege to a Christian. I'm a Christian. That's a sacrilege. You, no Christian can allow that to happen. And they're doing the same thing with the Chinese versions of the Koran. Uh, they're doing the same thing with Tibetan Buddhists where uh, temples have been uh, torn down. Uh, damage, uh, uh, sacred symbols uh, taken out of those places of worship. And then we know that in many of these places of worship, if you're uh, uh, a religious believer in China and your faith gives you the courage, in spite of all that's likely to happen to you, to continue to go to your religious services, you know that when you walk into that temple or into that church or... Uh, into your place of worship, that when you walk into the religious sanctuary there, uh, there's a camera in the church that is filming your face and using artificial intelligence facial recognition. Your presence in that place of worship has been sent to computers controlled by the Chinese communists, and it's gone into the risk assessment of who you are and how much you will be trusted in Chinese society. And so we get down to not only you may not get a promotion you deserve or you may not get the job you applied for, Uh, your children may not get into the university they wanted to go, Uh, but literally this has been taken down to the level of uh, you could get on a bus in a particular province and show your ID card to the computer that's on the bus, and the bus driver could look at the readout and say you, I'm sorry, get off the bus. You're not allowed to travel outside this neighborhood, or you're not allowed to travel outside this province. So um, this is a level of persecution of religious believers that other tyrants around the world can only dream of having. And that's why I'm so worried that many others are worried that communist China is not only uh, violating human rights and suppressing religious liberty, but they're in danger of being able to create an authoritarian bloc around the world. Uh, a, A group of countries depending on Chinese technology, Chinese financial assistance, perhaps Chinese military help, And that block, that authoritarian block of dictators, uh, despots, and countries like Communist China, I think very much could become a a major rival to the Western democracies, setting themselves up as as an example to other dictators of how you can have economic growth, perhaps. You you might be able to improve a lot of your people into bringing them into the modern world, but you can do it while still denying them the basic human rights and human dignity that every human being deserves. So I, I think it's a very much an open question uh, of what the next 50 years will show, whether the the vision of the Western free democracies based on the human dignity of every person, or whether this uh, authoritarian bloc, the communist China uh, seems to be establishment establishing will become the model
0: for the uh, emerging world to follow in the decades ahead. So I really had to add that entire piece, but we have to point out at this point as these years are like decades right now in the formation of the political environment internationally, you can see that this huge block this authoritarian autocracy, this block of Chinese Communist Party axis of evil, if you will, is now being joined by the European Union. And they have this special arrangement, this special deal that they're making with the Vatican. So we have to take a closer look at that. We have an article here in the Epic Times by Ella Kaitlinska and this is October 14th, 2020, Vatican Ways China Deal raising concerns of siding with the communist system. The Vatican is in the process of renewing its deal signed two years ago with the Chinese Communist Party. It recognizes CCP appointed bishops as legitimate, but the deal emboldened the regime to persecute Catholics more than ever. The agreement between the Holy See and and China set to expire in October allows the Chinese regime to appoint China's bishops and grants the, the Pope only veto power. In the two years since the Vatican Agreement has been implemented with the Chinese Communist Party, Catholics and Christians have been More greatly persecuted than ever. This is a quote by James Bascom, assistant director of the Washington Bureau of the Catholic Organization. The American Society for Defense and Tradition, Family and Property told the Epic Times in this interview. The Vatican hoped that the rapprochement with communist regimes such as the Soviet Union, Cuba, that took place in the middle of the 20th century would have led to a greater freedom of religion for Catholics in these countries, Bascom told the Epic Times. So the article goes on. But the point is is that there is this reaching out and this establishment of control that the papacy is getting, even if they're saying, well, that they reneged on this deal or the Pope only gets veto authority over bishops, or it really goes to show that the CCP is in bed with the Vatican. And in order to kind of take a closer look at this kind of really turnabout of events, this kind of schizophrenic geopolitical turnaround that we're seeing with the Biden administration. We'll take a listen to this entrepreneur who is a activist and a leader in China, and he's also a Christian, and his name is Jimmy Lai. And at this point in time, this individual who is talking in this interview is probably arrested. He's probably been in jail for quite some time and been charged. He might be disappeared and never heard from again. But he was a major leader in China, speaking up for the rights of the Chinese people and the Christians in China who are being trampled underfoot. And I think he, he was a long time ago an activist who was at Tiananmen Square in 1989, something that the CCP likes to deny was an atrocity, a bloodletting, and a a murder of of the the citizens of China by the CCP. So let's listen to Jimmy lie real quick.
2: I think the Vatican not only hasn't done more, but has forsaken the underground Catholic believers by signing the treaty with China, because it's like hang, hang over the underground Catholic believers to the patriotic religious department of the CCP. So you know, I, I'm I'm very disappointed about this. Pope. I'm very disappointed about you know what. They did by extending the treaty, which is secret. Nobody knows what's happening. And during the last
3: two years, what Xi Jinping has done to religion is really horrible. And yet, Vatican is so pleased to extend the pact with them. I I, I just don't I just don't understand.
1: wait
4: What do you think that the Vatican should do?
1: If if the Pope was sitting here in this room, this Zoom call with us, what would you tell the the Pope that you would like to see him do?
2: Well, the Vatican is the supreme authority of moral standard. And the greatest power to fight against the CCP is moral authority. Look at Hong Kong. Leaving. That's why I'm always against violence. All we have is non violent and
9: peaceful demonstration, which gets a lot of sympathy and resonance from the world
2: just because peace and non violence hold such a high moral standard.
0: So that clip is on JustTheNews.com and this man Jimmy Lai is well known in China. And for these comments, and for his position, and his nonviolent stance against the persecution of the Uyghurs and the different Christian church, you know, people in the underground Christian church there in China. And I think that the, uh, I think that the, these headlines are saying that Jimmy Lai has now been arrested, and he's an enemy of the state, and the CCP will punish him, or reprogram him, or, or kill him, or whatever. They're, they'll sell his body parts to the highest bidder. They'll find a way to make. Um, Jimmy Lai profitable to the the state there in China and the communist state. So I think the Vatican coming in to give away its moral authority and to appease the CCP and to, I mean, really, if you look at the history of communism, going back to Karl Marx and his being tutored there in London in the different libraries and the different halls of education there in London, he was tutored Tutored by Peter Becks, and Peter Becks would later go become the superior general of the Society of Jesus. So he would become the the head and the the, the master of that particular military organization there. And you have to recognize that if Communism was a product of the academia and the scholarship and the political experience and learning of the Jesuits, and they would put it into practice as a weapon against independent nation states and as a way to bring about imperialism and globalism and internationalism. Then you can see that the CCP has been an, an idea virus, a, a, an intellectual product of the Vatican all along. So I have to introduce this interesting little clip here, and, and you know, it's the, kind of the nature of the show. Show to try to develop different areas and to try to get to the facts, so we're going to just kind of pull at the different encyclopedia threads of the internet here to try to inform us on what is really happening with the European Union. So we have this really useful and cool uh, video here on YouTube called "The European Union Explained," and so we'll go through this little video and we'll listen to how the entire process kind of is kind of convoluted and complex. How the uh, the different independent nations of Europe have become taken over by this this internationalist authoritarian bloc there in The Hague, and how they have been organized as a federation of, of nations and as a revived Holy Roman Empire. And you can see that Hitler's goal was to unite Europe. And uh, before the the Third Reich there uh, in Germany, there was other uh, different emperors of Germany, of the Holy Roman Empire, that were interested in making all the different nations of Europe work together. And those were an extension of the authority of the Vatican and of the right of the papacy to rule all kings and nations in the world. So, you can even see in 1517, when uh, Martin Luther made his stand and, and nailed his 95 Thesis on the on the door there in Wittenberg, or was it Worms? I think it was Wittenberg. He um, had to go and stand before the Holy Roman Emperor, Charles V, and he was the protector of Christendom, and he was the defender of the, the Holy See and the papacy and the Vatican there in Rome, and their right to rule all nations and to rule all uh, religion. And so, when uh, Martin Luther came out to point out that the Vatican was a false Christianity and was actually standing and opposed to the actual scriptural doctrinal truth of Christianity, then of course he was deposed as a heretic and he was brought before the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V. So you can see this kind of imperialism was the same thing, uh, the same scale that Hitler was trying to achieve in his Third Reich and you can see that the European Union has really come about as a brainchild of the Bilderberg meetings and all that kind of stuff and as as a product of international to become a federated state, and at the core of that is Italy, and at the core of Italy is the international city of Rome, and at the core of the international city of Rome is this ancient and obnoxious dictatorship of the papacy. And As we shall see, the actual Vatican City, not only is it a a tiny city, it is also a nation state, so it's just like France, or England, or Sweden, or Russia, It's, it's its own nation nation state, uh, sovereign nation state we might add. So let's go ahead and listen to this quick tutorial
10: point us towards the first bit of border fuzziness with Norway, Iceland, and Little Liechtenstein. none of which are in the European Union, but if you're an EU citizen, you can live in these countries, and Norwegians, Icelanders, or Liechtensteiners can live in yours. Why? In exchange for freedom of movement of people, they have to pay membership fees to the European Union, even though they aren't a part of it, and thus don't get a say in its laws that they still have to follow. This arrangement is the European Economic Area, and it sounds like a terrible deal were it not for that asterisk which grants EEA, but not EU members, a pass on some areas of law, notably farming and fishing, something a country like, say, Iceland, might care quite a lot about running themselves. Between the European Union and the European Economic Area, the continent looks mostly covered, with the notable exception of Switzerland, who remains neutral and fiercely independent, except for her participation in the Schengen Area. If you're from a country that keeps her borders extremely clean and or well patrolled, the Schengen area is a bit mind-blowing because it's an agreement between countries to take a meh approach to borders. In the Schengen area, international boundaries look like this. No border officers or passport checks of any kind. You can walk from Lisbon to Tallinn without identification or the need to answer the question, business or pleasure. For Switzerland, being part of Schengen but not part of the European Union means that non-Swiss can check in any time they like, but they can never stay. This kumbaya approach to borders isn't appreciated by everyone in the EU. Most loudly, the United Kingdom and Ireland who argue that islands are different. Thus, to get onto these fair isles, you'll need a passport and a good reason. Britannia's reluctance to get fully involved with the EU brings us to the next topic money. The European Union has its own fancy currency, the euro, used by the majority but not all of the European Union members. This economic union is called the eurozone, and to join, a country must first reach certain financial goals. And lying about reaching those goals is certainly not something anyone would do. Most of the non eurozone members, when they meet the goals, will ditch their local currency in favor of the euro, but three of them, Denmark, Sweden, and of course the United Kingdom, have asterisks attached to the euro section of the treaty, giving them a permanent opt-out. And weirdly, four tiny European countries, Andorra, San Marino, Monaco, and Vatican City have an asterisk giving them the exact reverse, the right to print and use euros as their money despite not being in the European Union at all.
7: That quick,
0: kind of poppy little tutorial really points out to us the convoluted nature of the European Union's kind of imperial layout, but it also points out that the Vatican City is apparently also a country, and it has the ability to print the, the euro money and to use it freely as it wants to, even though it's not actually a part or a signer to the European Union at all. So it doesn't have to participate with its laws. So it has full advantage of the European Union Empire, and actually organizes it and sets it up and freely prints the euro and the money, but doesn't have have any legal obligation to the euro laws as they begin to kind of control the other countries in the European Union. As we move forward here, we have another kind of document, an article, a speech that we want to add into the record here of this particular episode that kind of makes the case. And we were using these other different points of view and these other topics and articles that we're reading and listening to here to really get up to the point where we can discuss this larger matter. And it's the question of Vatican civil law and their control within countries and within nations and their establishment of the European Union. So what I want to do here is really take a close look at this interesting speech here by Michael de Samion. And he's going to discuss the relationship between the European Union and the Vatican and lay out for us the principles of how the Treaty of Rome and for some decades before that, the Club of Rome as a quasi secret group of European nations work together to build this the European Union uh, economic zone and to build ultimately to get to where they are now trying to pull all these other European countries into this empire of Europe and ultimately the Brexit issue is the effort of Britain to escape the kind of black hole of uh, hegemony that the European Union is creating and it looks like the different people in, in Germany and in Italy and different figures in Europe, especially in France. Apparently, I think the French President Macron is really the one who's in the headlines most recently talking about the need for the European Union to build its own military defense. So, that was outlawed after World War II. Uh, Germany and uh, the other countries of Europe could not have a military because we just had World War II and they all just killed um, hundreds, you know, millions of people with this massive war. So, that's why NATO exists. NATO is a North Atlantic Treaty Organization and it's supposed to exist in order to defend Europe, even though none of the European countries like to pay for the upkeep of that, that it, which is what the Trump uh, administration had pointed out. But the point being that the European Union is now becoming its own kind of super state and it's really interested in uh, roping in the United States into this you know, international criminal court, the ICC, which we were not a signer, we were not a signator, we did not ratify the, the authority of that jurisdiction of that court, but I can imagine under Biden that that will change. So as we're going forward here, I want to just take a look at this really in-depth, deeply penetrating discussion by Michael DeSamian, and um, after that we'll have a more clear understanding of the threat of the European Union and the power of the Vatican's diplomacy and their mass their their subterfuge and manipulation into the civil law of, of nations.
11: Great, great British preacher, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones was correct when he proclaimed that the Roman Catholic Church is a counterfeit and a sham. It represents prostitution of the worst and most diabolical kind. It binds the souls of its people absolutely, just as communism and Nazism did, and is itself a totalitarian system. Close the quote. Papal pronouncements on Europe. On August the 31st, 2003, Pope John Paul II entrusted the future of the new Europe to the Virgin Mary. In the words of the Catholic news agency Zenit, quote, He placed Europe in Mary's hands so that it would become a symphony of nations committed to building together the civiliz- civilization of love and peace. Last Sunday, The Holy Father urged that the final draft of the European Constitution should recognise explicitly the Christian roots of the continent as they constitute a guarantee of a future. The official teaching of Rome makes clear that this statement concerning the Christian roots of the continent is a façade. When the Pope or his Church use the term Christian, they mean Roman Catholic. A recent official decree decree of Rome condemns, quote, the tendency to read and to interpret sacred scripture outside the tradition and magisterium of the Church. Rome officially proclaims that the Christian Church of Christ is the Catholic Church. In her decree, she states, Therefore, there exists a single Church of Christ, which subsists in the Catholic Church, governed by the successor of Peter and by the bishops in communion with him. Just as the Nazis declared non-Aryans to be non-humans, so now the Church of Rome declares other churches to be non-churches. Her official words are, The ecclesial communities which have not preserved the valid episcopate and the genuine and integral substance of the Eucharistic mystery are not churches in the proper sense. In the same document, Dominus Iesus of September the 5th, 2000, footnote 51, refers to a, a decree which states, We declare, say, define, and proclaim to every human creature that they, by necess- necessity for salvation, are entirely subject to the Roman Pontiff. The mind of Rome is thus expressed in her official decrees. Once the Protestant nations are committed to the emerging European super-state and its constitution, the Vatican's plan to once again Christianize the European Union will be implemented. As described by the London Sunday Telegraph, the Pope is calmly preparing to assume the mantle which he solemnly believes to be his divine right, that of the new Holy Roman Emperor reigning from the Urals to the Atlantic. The Vatican has a unique contribution to the EU, the European Union. The EU already has most of the attributes needed for nationhood. It has a passport, a flag, a single currency and an anthem. It is also drawing up its, its constitution. The further characteristics of nationhood, such as a president, international ambassadors and a foreign secretary, the Vatican carefully gives soul to all of this by claiming that this is, quote, a unique contribution to the building up of a Europe open to the world. The Pope in his Ecclesia in Europe states, one and universal, yet present in the multiplicity of the particular churches, the Catholic Church can offer a unique contribution to the building up of a Europe open to the world. The Catholic Church, in fact, provides a model of essential unity in a diversity of cultural expressions, a consciousness of membership in a universal community which is rooted in, but not confined to, local communities, and a sense of what unites beyond all that divides. The particular churches in Europe, as quoted there, are not simple agencies or private organizations. Rather, they carry out their work with a special institutional dimension that merits legal recognition in full respect for just systems of civil legislation. Particular churches in Europe is simply a pretence. The Vatican views itself as the particular Church, and officially states, the Catholic faithful are required to profess that there is an historical continuity rooted in the apostolic succession between the Church founded by Christ and the Catholic Church. From the decrees published, it is clear that apart from the Church of Rome establishing herself as the quote, unique contribution to the building up of a Europe open to the world, she claims for herself legal recognition in accord with her own civil legislation. This has been the basis of the Vatican's political manipulation over the centuries. While Rome carefully prepares her own legal place, she will tolerate no rivals quote, the ecclesial communities which have not preserved the valid Episcopate are not churches in the proper sense. Most certainly, they are not to be included as part of the unique contribution to the building up of a Europe open to the world. As author Adrian Hilton warned recently in an article in The Spectator, The issue of European religious union is one that has been concealed even deeper than the plans for political union. But the ratchet towards a Catholic Europe is just as real. The Pope's recent demand that God be featured in the emerging European constitution has been echoed by many leading Catholic politicians and bishops, While on the surface such a reference may offend only Europe's atheistic and humanist contingent, it must be observed that when the Vatican refers to God, she sees herself as God's infallible vice-regent upon earth, the leading organ of divine expression. Indeed, according to its publication, Dominus Iesus, as the only mediator in the salvation of God's elect, insisting that all other churches, including the Church of England, are not churches in the proper sense. Meaning of the Pope's message to Europe. The Ecclesia in Europa pronouncement is one of the cleverest produced by the late Paul Pope John Paul II. It's a masterpiece that purportedly proclaims the Christian message, while in fact it teaches the rites and rituals of the papacy. For example, the concept of the Gospel of Hope is mentioned 40 times in the dissertation. The message, however, is not one of hope. Rather, it is an adept counterfeit. For example, paragraph 74 begins by stating... A prominent place needs to be given to the celebration of the sacraments, as actions of Christ and as of the church ordered to the worship of God, to the sanctification of people, and to the building up of the ecclesial community. Quote. The Pope thus prevents presents, rather, his physical, symbolic sacraments as the efficacious cause of salvation. In place of the direct obedience to Christ Jesus demanded in the gospel of faith, the sacraments are purported to be actions of Christ. This is where the Vatican's pretension of hope lies. Such sacraments are declared necessary for salvation in the official teaching of Rome. Quote, the Church affirms that for believers the sacraments of the new covenant are necessary for salvation. Sacramental grace is the grace of the Holy Spirit given by Christ and proper to each sacrament. By setting aside the direct work of God in Christ Jesus, the sacraments of Rome are seeking to steal from Christ his priesthood and to rob him, of his power as mediator. The Roman Church also seeks to rob God, the Holy Spirit, of his peculiar work as the sanctifier by attributing his power of giving grace to its own rituals. Moreover, it seeks to rob God the father of his prerogatives of justifying and forgiving sinners. This is the reality behind the concept
7: of the gospel of hope that permeates the, pope's, the former Pope's
11: message to Europe. Throughout the centuries, Rome has substituted her sacraments for the gospel in a consistently degrading insult to the grace of God. Shameful to God and damning to men is the Pope's memorandum to Europe. We are at a seminal moment in history as the Holy Roman Empire re-emerges as a European superstate. Throughout her history, the papacy has remained self-governing and invincible to every restraining force other than that of the power of God in the Gospel. Bible believers need to be aware of the times in which we live. We need to study the history of the EU in order to see the outworking of the guile of Rome. A short history of the European Union. After the destruction, ruin and enormous human cost of the Second World War, statesmen and politicians resolved to ensure that it would never happen again. In 1946, Sir Winston Churchill suggested in a famous speech at Zurich in Switzerland that, quote, we must build a kind of United States of Europe. This was not a commitment for Britain to participate in the European project, as Euro-enthusiasts have often insisted. Churchill envisaged a Western Europe of free, independent, sovereign nations, not an undemocratic, federal superstate. Together, the nations would reach for a destiny of unprecedented cooperation and harmony. In 1950, the Schumann Plan proposed the supranational pooling of the German and French coal and steel industries in order to lay the basis of European economic unity. The partial merger of the economies of the two traditional enemies would ensure continuing peace between them. French Foreign Minister Robert Schumann and German, German Chancellor Conrad Adenauer signed the agreement, the Treaty of Paris, as co-founders of the Franco-German Coal and Steel Confederation. Like their colleagues Jean Monnet and Paul-Henri Spark, they were both devout Roman Catholics who shared the vision of successive post-war popes for a re-Catholicized and united Europe. Adenauer and Schumann, along with Alci de gasteri all three founding fathers, are in the process of being made into saints by the Vatican as a reward for founding the new Europe, quote on Roman Catholic principles. The European Economic Community, the EEC. This was established in 1957 by the Treaty of Rome and brought in Italy, Holland, Belgium and Luxembourg to join with France and Germany in removing trade barriers between member states and unifying their economic policies. It made clear to those with sufficient stamina to read the treaty's lengthy and turgid document, that the aim of the project was always to achieve political unity in economic disguise, an ever closer union. In 1962, the common agricultural policy was introduced with a single European market and price fixing, which has consistently favored French farmers. The Northwest, technocrat journal commented on the developing design of the european project at that time i quote fascism in europe is about to be reborn in respectable business attire and the treaty of rome will be finally implemented to its fullest extent The dream of a Holy Roman Empire returning to power to dominate and direct the so-called forces of Christian mankind of the Western world is not dead, but still stalks through the antechambers of every national capital of continental Western Europe in the determination of the leaders in the common market to restore the Holy Roman Empire with all that that means. Nearly 30 years later... The London-based Sunday Telegraph was to express the same concern in a major article headed, now a holy European empire, question mark. It stated, The Vatican notoriously thinks in centuries, in Pope John Paul II we have the most political pope of modern times. It is in the movement towards federalism as a common market, with the coming membership of Eastern European countries, as well as in the turmoil of the Soviet Union, that the Pope may see the greatest possibility for an increase in Catholic political power since the fall of Napoleon or since the Counter-Reformation. The common market itself started under the inspiration of Catholic politicians, such as Adenauer of Germany, Paul-Henri Spark, John Monet and Robert Schumann. The EC Social Charter and the social- Socialism of Jacques Delors, president, former President of the European Commission, are imbued with Catholic social doctrine. If European federalism triumphs, the EC will indeed be an empire, It will
0: lack an emperor, but it will have the Pope. Here we can see that Michael DeSamian is going to really articulate this whole discussion in these very stark and sobering terms. And the the whole interview, the whole discussion here is about an hour long, and it's just really enlightening, and it's really informative, and I'll try to remember to add it with this particular podcast so you can listen to the entire discussion. But it's obvious to me that as we go through and look at the historical motivation of the Vatican, we can see that their uh, fingerprints are behind the United Nations and also now the European Union. And you can see, really as we put in uh, other other articles relating to this whole topic, that the actual euro, the actual money for the European Union, has the face of the papacy, the the pope, on it. And um, that's the current pope, too, so that these aren't dead popes from the past or historical dead presidents. If you want, these are just it's the current pope's face on the money so there's really no way to to be confused over what political doctrine or what hegemony is really being asserted when it comes to a resurgence of the Holy Roman Empire, and really that's an enforcement of Christendom, that's an enforcement of the the law and the doctrine and the dogma of the Roman Catholic Church over all the other nations of the world, and ultimately through this empire where it once controlled the kings of France and the kings of Germany, and ultimately I guess kings can be uh, upstarts and they can change their mind and they can rescind the uh, Edict of Nance. So they can put in, the Edict of Nance in place. I think that the, uh, the papacy and the Jesuits were furious when the Edict of Nance was put into place. And then, of course, they were trying to get someone to take it away. And then later on, when it was put back into place, I think they just decided to destroy the entire place with the French Revolution, and which was accomplished by the Jacobins at the time, who were inspired by the Illuminati. And we went through all these episodes before, but it's really this, in the background, it's this looming... And calculating power structure of the Vatican, who deigns itself to be the the chief princes and rulers of the world and all the different governments of the world should be um, lowered to submission to their authority. And so that's what we're seeing here. And I think we have to go here to look at another interesting document also. And this is a discussion by Richard Bennett, and he is going to discuss the ways that the Vatican has used civil law and authority and uh, documentation like the Concord and the illegally and binding agreements and the, uh, the the different kinds of uh, banking institutions. Um, of course, there's the Vatican Bank, and, and when countries uh, need to be built up or need loans or need to be interdicted by the international community and through the different organizations like the Knights of Malta and, of course, the Island of Malta is a, its own a nation and exists there in the European Union. Also, but when these different nations, uh, in the different glo- these orders of globalism, want to go and interdict a different nation, then you can see that the diplomatic corps and the Jesuit foot soldiers and the prelates of the Vatican are going to show up with a concordat where they can come in and get involved with your country and begin to exercise through the actual police and through the military and through the judges of that land, like we saw in uh, the Weimar Republic in Germany. Germany. saw the Vatican come in and implement their crazy uh, strategies and crazy different policies at the time, and which really resulted in the liquidation of the Jews in Auschwitz. And people don't understand how that even came about, but you have to understand that in 1933, the Vatican signed a Concordat with, with Hitler. So let's listen to Richard Bennett here a little bit and he'll bring some clarity to the subject.
12: I was actually there that the Vatican had signed a concordat, as a legal concordat with the state of Slovakia. The Vatican, the Holy See as they call the Vatican, as it deals with politics and deals with civil law, the Vatican is not just a religion, it is also a civil state. And as a civil state, they can work together with other states, prime ministers, and um, presidents. And uh, the Vatican had signed a concordat with the Slovak nation. And then the people whom I talked to, most of whom were Bible believers, they were shocked. And they said to me, this means that we will not have control over our property like we had before and that we could be wanting to build a new church and then the state will not allow us and we know for certain it means that some of our Christian radio programs and where we broadcast on different stations, they will not be allowed to go out anymore by civil law. And if we persist, and if the civil authorities want to close down a church, it is the police that will turn up, not the archbishop. (laughs) It's the police. And it was, um, I was quite aware at that stage of what. uh, What Concordats were, I knew how the damage it had done in Venezuela and in many other nations of the world Where in Venezuela because of uh, Concordat there's only 1% of the nation who are biblically Christians. Uh, They've had a, a Concordat there for many, many years. I knew about this, but now to be actually in a nation at the time when the Concordat was signed, it brought home the reality the claws and the teeth as it were of Rome as a civil power and exercising control or coercion over 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 nations in civil law And so people are not aware of this and it's of uttermost importance that we speak on it and I'm just uh, trusting that it will be used and that you will as you view this program that you will inform others and and, and awake people to the reality of what the Roman Catholic Church is and how they control nations in civil law. And uh, I am really privileged to have with me Bill Mancaro because he is very well versed in these things and he actually had worked in the um, United States with the Congress and in drafting legislation Years ago, uh, when he was much younger, he had actually worked in Congress and in giving advice regarding legislation. And uh, he has um, some interesting views having visited the Vatican. He has uh, some, uh, some uh, photographs that he took there of where they depicted their control in the past. So that'll be explained later on. So it's a real privilege to have Bill Mancaro here. So I would ask if you begin by explaining, Bill, some of the, principle or the principles that the Vatican has and how it works this way.
13: Thank you for having me Richard. I'm honored to, to be here and it is it is a subject that uh, is very interesting uh, to me and some uh, I've followed for a number of years. Uh, historically if we look at it and I'm glad you mentioned the concordats and I think we need to, to, to go into that in a little more detail in a moment. Some history of it. The principle as you know on, on which the Church of Rome has proceeded historically uh, is that in virtue of its spiritual character it claims to have control over earthly kings and princes. Uh, it's It openly claims, it has claimed historically, to be vested with the power uh, of controlling and disposing of rulers of countries. Uh, coercion through civil law among European nations is what the Catholic Church uh, thrived on for many, many years through the Middle Ages. Uh, this coercion, in fact, was the primary uh, uh Underpinning, I guess you'd say, uh, of its power, uh, worldly power during the 600 years of the Inquisition, uh, and in the growth of her religious power system generally throughout the centuries, uh, her methods have changed. Let's make no mistake, but let's not confuse the change of methods with the change of goal. Yes, yes, the goal. yes. <laughs> uh, the goal was the same, and uh, we're going to see, Lord willing, in this video that uh, as you. Said these concordats uh, are the are the underpinnings. The way that the uh, Catholic Church has grown and in strengthened in numbers is in proportion to her legal agreements with other nations. And uh, Richard, uh, you're certainly well
12: versed in this. Can you give us some historical background on that? Yes, I will explain some things. It was on uh, February the tenth in uh, seventeen, I think, was seventeen ninety eight exactly. That general uh, Louise Alexandre Bertier, he was the chief of staff of, of Napoleon, and uh, you know the commander of, of Napoleon, and he entered Rome, uh, and uh, he proclaimed that uh, the whole area around there was to become a a, a Roman. Rep- public and he uh, he commanded that Pope Pius the sixth uh, who was uh, had a temporal power you know the Popes in those days had that nation they had states uh, in, 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 and they they had temporal power he he removed him from his papal throne in that way he removed the civil uh, control that uh, the Vatican had, they're physically over those states in Italy, and uh, he was um, taken in that way from his throne He still remained a so-called spiritual leader, but he was uh, he was removed, and uh, but he he. Uh, worked out together with cardinals and all and then it was after that that they began to reorganize it was they they were going to reorganize so that they could claim back uh, their civil power and they their authority to work civil human in that sense was a was quite quite talented in the evil that he did and how he, he brought in Romanism brought, brought Romanism back to um, to um, predominance and that, then that Romanism could then enter into more into the civil side of things then um, a a pope that is quite well known in history, Pius the Ninth, Pio Nono, as they used to call him in the in the the, the, the uh, in the Latin form of the name or the Italian form. But Pius the Ninth, he was the longest reigning pope there's ever been. He lived longer as a pope than any other pope has done. In the um, in in 1870, he set out to get the church to have a leader that could not be questioned so that if the Pope makes decisions regarding doctrine or dogma, he cannot be questioned and that if they make decisions regarding their civil authority they cannot be questioned, and uh, there was huge debate because a lot of the, uh, a lot of the um, the cardinals and the, the bishops and archbishops, you know, the the top brass of of, of Rome, uh, they um, did not agree to the. Dogma that was to be was to be pronounced. The dogma was on the fact that the Pope is infallible, <laughs> that he cannot err. Now you would know, or anybody knows, that nobody's infallible. <laughs> it's it's God alone who cannot lie. You know what I mean? Who cannot? Yeah, ma- Let God be true, in every man a liar, as Scripture says. It's it it's it's a ludicrous thing that a man is infallible
13: to be the, the king of that nation on his knees before the pope presenting his crown uh, yeah. and, and other types of pictures like that and i was just amazed in fact i took uh, videos of it because I, I really couldn't believe that that they had that there and that they hadn't covered them up because <laughs> <laughs> i'm sure they don't want people to see that uh, but it, they, frankly, they clearly show in stark detail the Vatican's contempt for every civil government. Um, whether it's a king or a president or a parliament or congress, they all must be under the authority of the Pope. And I'm just not saying it. Let's, it I mean, there's public documents. Um, here, I, I, I brought Pope uh, Boniface VIII in the papal bullunum sanctum. Remember, uh, this papal pronouncement can never be changed. He's infallible. It's ex-cathedra. Boniface wrote, quote, Certainly the one who denies that the temporal sword, and of course that means the authority of the civil government, who, the person who denies that it is in the power of Peter, it, they have not listened well to the word of the Lord. This is containing with the quote. Both, therefore, he's talking about the uh, political... The uh, rule and the spiritual rule are in the power of the church that is to say the spiritual and the material sword but the former is to be administered for the church but the latter by the church the former is in the hands of the priest the latter by the hands of kings and soldiers but at the will and sufferance of the priest and he continues However, one sword ought to be subordinated to the other and temporal authority, political power, subjected to spiritual power, which, of course, is the Catholic Church. And that's its pronouncement by the Pope. Uh, So in plain language, the the ruler of any country must kneel before the Pope and obey his commands. Now, if that wasn't enough, there's another one. Yes, yes. Uh, Which you certainly know of, but I I want our audience to know about this. Uh, Infallible papal command... From the syllabus of errors condemned by Pius, that's Pope Pius IX, on December 8, 1864. It says the civil government of any nation has no authority over the Catholic Church. Out and out plain statement. Specifically, the way it does it, it, it puts up a proposition and says this proposition is false. So the way it's done, it says, quote, uh, it condemns the idea that, quote, the civil power can define what are the rights and limits within which the Church may exercise authority. I said, that's, that's wrong. That's flat-out wrong. So that Vatican document also claims in, in Statement uh, for, uh, 42, but what I just read is Statement 19, by the way, from the
12: syllabus. In Statement 42, it says, the Catholic Church's laws are above the civil government laws. Just out and out. There it is. Uh, So you can look that up on papalencyclicals.net on the internet. Uh, well, I I spoke about the uh, 1798, uh, how the the um, Catholic Church lost its civil power when Pius VI was removed as, as you know as a controller of of the civil states. And uh, but how did it gain it back? Uh, it's quite interesting. It was under the Catholic uh, um, controller, you know, the of the nation of Italy, Mussolini. in, in 1929 that the Vatican entered into negotiation with him uh, that um, while Italy had become a republic that into this nation that land and the status of being a state would be given to the Catholic Church now it's about 108 acres the size of an 18-hole golf course, <laughs> but it's, they were given territory, which they call a state, it's Vatican State, and uh, this was recognized in civil law, and then as a civil state, they were to claim that they were the oldest state in, in, in Europe in the civilized world and that then they would have precedence over other states. So this was in in 1729 and uh, it was the first of these legal agreements which later on were to be called concordats between the... Uh, It was the first uh, at that time. In in, you know, at that level, there were some others before. In as regards uh, other nations, particularly the Latino nations, you know, there was some other concordance with them. But this was the first, like of the of the nations that were European and quite large, like Italy. It was the first of these, and um, the most infamous was the. Concordat of Pius XII with Adolf Hitler. Um, people wonder why it was, you know, that the uh, the Catholic Church wouldn't condemn Hitler, and why the Catholics particularly were uh, predominant, the generals and a lot of the officers in the army, Hitler's army. Why it was, you know, that the Pope would not condemn. The Pope had made an agreement. To endorse Catholicism, and they held to their agreement, and uh, it had a huge repercussions right across Europe. Uh, that was um, the the agreement that uh, Pius XII had with Adolf Hitler. So um, it's uh, it continues to be uh, that Mother Church continues to impose its law on other nations. Uh, And you can find out just what a concordat it is. It is, um, It is a civil agreement of the Vatican as a civil state, and they call it the Holy See when they're a civil state, with a, another government. And in that government, uh, the Catholic Church uh, insists on certain things. They don't always get the whole list of things, but they usually get most of them. Uh, um, they are concorded. They try to insist that in civil law, it's for the Catholic Church to decide on what is the religion and how it to be exercised in a nation. Now, um, they haven't succeeded in that because nations uh, want to have religious freedom like United States is not. It's, it's very founding principles you know, that, the, that the, you cannot impose religion. So they're not, they're not too successful in getting that except with some of the South American nations where they have concordats, And then that they have the right of education
0: I have to highly recommend that you pursue your uh, in your research some of the other articles and speeches by Richard Bennett, and he was discussing how he was a Jesuit-educated. And he was a priest for 22 years in the Roman Catholic Church. So he has a lot of authority and a lot of uh, tangible intellectual gravity that he brings to the whole discussion here. And he really gets the whole discussion historically and legally and culturally and religiously. is just massive. So he, he has to kind of go and talk, touch on a lot of different um, topics. But he really has to get back to these Concordat that the Vatican started with with Mussolini in 1929. And eventually he had uh, the, the Pope. Had a concordat that was Pius XII a concordat with Hitler and also with Stalin and these are this is not something that's widely known or widely reported on and it's in the background but these kind of private documents these treaties under civil law had a, a huge reason uh, were, were the main driving reason behind uh, what happened during World War II and so we have to get into those that whole subject matter the idea that there could be independent states in Europe um, competing with each other had to go they wanted to get back to this idea of a holy roman empire controlled by the pope and so the kind of carefully engineered collapse of the old order of of things in europe was at the center and ultimately they what they did during all the crusades is they they made a pogrom out of the, the jewish people and they went and uh Rounded up, the, the Stalin built the the camps in Poland, and then when Hitler went and advanced his army into Poland, he took over the camps and used those camps in the quasi militarized zone to put uh, the crematoria where they would do the Holocaust and kill so many millions of Jews in a horrific way. And you have to recognize that Pope Pius XII was behind that, and we'll get the it, we're, we're approaching these issues. We're going to develop these claims are are heavy and they're difficult to understand, but we're going to flesh all this out. We're going to explain and give you the documentation, the historical background behind all these events and uh, we're really trying to get you to understand why the Roman church is in the business of creating a treaties within civil law and how this has to do with the United Nations and ultimately the European Union. In the matter of this whole discussion, we have to take into consideration what's really at the heart of the matter is the doctrine of temporal and spiritual supremacy and authority that the Pope te- uh, claims to have. So he, he has a, a triple crown, or a tiara, um, where the, the, the three crowns of heaven, earth, and hell, he claims to be the ruler of this entire dominion and have the right to set people free from purgatory or to send them into to purgatory to punish them or to burn heretics or to punish heresy and is the corrector of true doctrine and it is infallible. And in all this kind of quasi-dictatorial kind of madness that is superimposed onto the papacy becomes comes more to light. And it helps you to understand this monstrous ego, this enormous mouth that boasts all these loud words of authority and, and walks around bejeweled and, and decked in gold and lives in the castle there in the Vatican this individual this autocrat dictatorship is really coming from Rome and it's coming from the background and the historical legacy of the a tyranny of Julius Caesar and we've discussed that in previous episodes. But we're really trying to show you how they're, they're in the Vatican, they're in the business of creating state departments, setting up espionage. I mean, their they're, they're school uh, of foreign service are legendary. Their Jesuits are the original CIA stormtroopers of Europe uh, who were at some point put in control of the Inquisition. And these individuals have not changed their, their attire, their doctrine, their words, their, their machinations, their stratagems have not changed and they will not change. So as we're going forward you need to recognize that the power structure that's coming out of Europe, that really drove all the Puritans and the Protestants and, and the, uh, the Baptists into North America in the first place. The reason why we came over here in the ships was to escape the um, the terror and the dread and the hor- horrible, the horrific slaughter and massacres that were happening across Europe. And, you know, like we might point out, uh, a lot of those, Spain brought those inquisitional fires to South America. A lot of the people, the Aztecs, uh, the Mayans, the, the different Inca tribes that were in South America were absolutely obliterated by the Spanish Inquisition and the, the Knights and the authority of the monarchy of Spain as he claimed a territory. So as we're going forward, we need to recognize this history is playing into our lives here, and really, the, the fight for freedom in America is a fight for a new republic, a new liberty, and a new mechanism of liberty, a new declaration of independence to escape this autocracy and this authoritarian regime that's being built up in the European Union and is really going to China and is seeking to, to make a relationship with the Chinese military power and economic strength and ultimately is being guided by the individual there in the Vatican in Rome, which is really the center of the European Union, the power structure there. The, the European Union has no emperor, but they have the pope as the other speaker said before. We've had to work really hard in this episode to establish the nature of this Concordat that the Vatican is establishing with the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party there, and it's creating all this kind of backlash and creating this outbreak of religious persecution, which shouldn't surprise us because that's what the Concordats have done in the past. Many of the men that went to Auschwitz uh, under the, the Third Reich in Germany were Lutheran and Baptist pastors, and you must recognize that at that time that the Catholic Church was the only recognized establishment of religion there in Germany, and that under that Concordat, the German people had to pay the Vatican a tax, which a tax which they still pay today. If you want to look it up yourself, you can find out that even today, the Germans are still under that Concordat, and they still pay the, this dividend of money to the Vatican. So, uh, I wonder if the Chinese Communist Party is going to have to pay a similar dividend. Um, but as we're going forward, we have uh, Jörg Glisman, and he's in Scandinavia, and he is reading from a book called Behind the Dictators, and he's doing a commentary as he reads chapter four, the re-establishment of the Holy Roman Empire, and it's going to go back and discuss a little bit of this time period when Napoleon is going to march his general Berthier down to 1799, 1798, down to Rome and arrest the Pope and take his papal states away and take his his ability to be a king and under law take his sovereignty and his civil power away. And uh, in that time, since 1799 or basically 1800, if you want to just round it up, the Pope hasn't had any civil power. Uh, until 1929, so that was approximately 129 years I'm thinking that right. You yeah, have 129 years of the Pope just being neutered of his his sovereign power and his uh, taking away his ability to be an absolute monarch and a papal monarch and establish himself as a king and to print money and to deal with other nations as a civil state. And that was reestablished in 1929 under Mussolini. Benito Mussolini was the uh, dictator of Italy and ultimately the Concordats with the Vatican, with Pope Pius XII, would continue continue. continue with Hitler and with other people and with Stalin, Joseph Stalin and Russia also would have a concordat. And so many of these legal agreements between the under civil law between the Vatican and other nations are the ties that bind and are the, the, the agreements and the corporate power structure that really empowers the Vatican and holds these other countries in check and really establishes this network of globalism and internationalism that we see coming in these institutions like the United Nations and ultimately the European Union is established under these laws. So we're going to listen to this really interesting discussion. York Glisman is going to read um, from the book Behind the Dictators, and he's also going to make comments. And um, And we're going to definitely be elucidating this whole t- subject matter that we've, we've been building upon here.
14: Reading chapter 4, the re-establishment of the Holy Roman Empire. So that means that there must have been a Roman Empire before. That is probably what is known as the Dark Ages between 538 and 1798. The Holy Roman Empire of German nation, which was from 800 and a few years until 1800, the end of the Napole- Le- Napoleonic Wars, a thousand year Reich that was ruled by the emperors of Germany through the Pope in Rome, of course. And now we are speaking about the re establishment of the Holy Roman Empire. The reading starts on page 20 in the PDF, if you follow along, as follows. Europe's tragedy and Catholic opinion, Roman Catholic opinion, is due to the breaking of its great papal-controlled confederation of states by the Protestant Reformation. All the efforts of the Roman Catholic Church since have been directed to the work of counter-reformation, to re-establish the political and social order of pre-Reformation times. And that's already the moment where I have to start for a first little comment here. All the efforts of the Catholic Church since the Protestant Reformation have been directed to work of counter-reformation. Their greatest work started with, in 1540, the approval of Antichrist Pope Leo III's approval of the Society of Jesus, the so-called Jesuits, founded by Ignatius of Loyola at that time and two years later as we read in Rulers of Evil the Society of Jesus, the Jesuits were agreeing on the terms of taking over the Inquisition from the Dominicans and another three years later in 1545 the Roman Catholic Church through the Jesuits started what is today called as the Council of Trent, that's took time, about 18 years, running in different sessions between 1545 and 1563, and that was counter-reformation. That was to work against everything Luther, Calvin, Tyndale, Wycliffe, Cranmer, Mortimer, Zwingli and all the other fantastic reformers had achieved up to that time, bringing light into the dark world where there was no light because the word of God was not known to the people who were ruled by tyrants as actually they are today that order of states was hierarchical not democratic and was ruled at the top by the dual sovereignty of pope and emperor by the union of church state authority as i mentioned already in the introduction of the thousand year reich holy roman empire of the german nation The political and social order that resulted from the Reformation, both in Europe and America, so you see there's a comparison that they both are quite the same, Mm -hmm. is regarded by the Catholic Church as pagan and anti-Christian. They give it the name of pseudo-democracy. Yeah, of course they call it anti-Christian, but of course my listeners know that the Roman Catholic Church is not Christian. So, this, what comes out of the Reformation, is actually not anti-Christian, it is anti-Roman Catholic. That is what you have to understand when reading sentences like these. This is to be found in all official Catholic writings, and is the burden of all papal encyclicals. Well, just read the Syllabus of Errors from Pio Nono, Antichrist Pope Pius IX from 1864, to learn what the Roman Catholic Church thinks of government of the people, for the people, by the people, based on the law of God, the Creator. The America, which is a magazine, the most famous Jesuit uh, magazine in the United States of America, for instance tells us that the evils of our present time are to be ascribed to this pseudo-democracy which is pagan in its remote origins and leads to an inhuman wage system, an uprooted proletariat and pauperism." It goes further to say, quote, Protestant, rationalist, and now definitely anti-Christian in its inspiration, its logical fruit is socialism, and calls for a return to an integral social order, the principles of which are still preserved in our languid memory of the great medieval experiment, unquote. Yeah, to call the Dark Ages a great medieval experiment? I don't know what to think about that. It was the rule of Satan, you can actually say, who was at that time not even known by the people because when they entered the church, they thought they entered the church of Christ, which was, of course, Babylon. That's why God wrote in Revelation 18 verse 4 Come out of her, my people, that you be not partakers of her sins. Now few realize how intense is the hatred of of the official Roman Catholic spokesman for the American democratic way of life. This same Jesuit magazine, America, which advertises itself as quote, the most influential Catholic magazine in the United States, unquote, published the following in its issue of May 17, 1941, just six months before Pearl Harbor. How we Catholics have loathed and despised this Lucifer civilization, this rationalist creation of those little men who refuse to bend the knee or bow the head in submission to higher authority. Today, American Catholics are being asked to shed their blood for that particular kind of secularist civilization which they have been uh, heroically repudiating for four centuries. This civilization is now called democracy, and the suggestion is being made that we send the Yanks to Europe again to defend it. In reality, is it worth defending? What's the sum and substance of it all? All the Yanks in America will will not save it from disintegration. Unless a miracle occurs, it is doomed. Finally and irrevocably doomed. The new order in Europe will be either a Nazi or a British totalitarianism. Or a combination of both. American democracy is disintegrating, crumbling from within. Fatigue, disillusionment, disgust, the unbearable tension in society, the fear of war and the fear of bankruptcy, the absence of security, the technological revolution which has gone far beyond the instruments of social control, deep rooted anarchistic hatred of a social order which has too long denied the principle of social justice, the revolt of the masses and the leveling of all values, the absence of any common ethical basis, these are but a few of the multiple factors in the decline which is now upon us. Leadership in this crisis will not come from the laity. It will not come from the bottom of the Catholic pyramid. It will come only from the top, from the hierarchy. The Christian revolution will begin when we decide to cut loose from the existing social order, rather than be buried with it." End quote. Now, what I've just read actually calls for not one comment, but I think almost an hour long comment. <laughs> <laughs> what yeah. they all put in this little article in the Jesuit magazine here already, I mean, just take the last sentence, the Christian revolution will begin when we decide to cut loose from the existing social order, rather than be buried with it. Leadership in this crisis will not come from the laity, it will not come from the bottom of the Catholic pyramid, it will come only from the top, from the hierarchy. This reminds me of the videos that I made some time ago, under the name of nothing but the truth, the externalization of the hierarchy, where we were speaking about the Ten Satanic Commandments coming out of the United Nations, published by Luce's Trust, formerly known as Lucifer's Trust. You see how all these things always come back together again? Saying in uh, in the last but one paragraph what I just read, American democracy is disintegrating. What do we have today? I mean, this book was written 1942 people, we are 74 years later and it is absolutely to the moment, on, spot on, how that is transferable absolutely into our time, 2016 today, the fear of war, the fear of bankruptcy, the absence of security, where you have an America to give up all your freedoms for security. And wasn't there an American president who said that when you give up um, your freedoms for security, you will lose both? The technical revolution, which has gone far beyond the instruments of social control. Well, what do we have today? Social control through social media. iPhones, iPads... Google+, Plus, Facebook, Twitter, all these social media, this social control that we are talking today of, that has already been been identified by them in this magazine in 1942, 74 years before today. And you can see how actually nothing has changed, right? Okay. Okay, when there's no more comment from you, I will continue the reading, Brad. Please continue. Whatever opinion the Catholic Church may now express about Hitler and his Nazi socialism, it stands 100% with him and the other fascist dictators in in this avowed objective of destroying the political and social order that came out of the Reformation and substituting therefore an integral positive Christian hierarchical confederation of states, similar to that which existed before protestantism disrupted the authoritarian order of things in central Europe. Well this sentence you have of course to change positive Christian hierarchical confederation of state Um, you have to read Christian always as a Roman Catholic, you know, a positive Roman Catholic hierarchical confederation of states similar to that which existed before the Protestant Europe Hitler laid it down in article 24 of his National Social Party program that quote the party as such starts from the standpoint of a positive Christianity unquote read Roman Catholicism this is specifically a Jesuit principle of action with the ultimate objective of inducing all Christian sects to unite with the Roman Catholic Church for a Christian reform of states, the establishment of an hierarchical grouping of cooperative states entirely devoid of Jewish, Masonic, and Protestant influence. Bishop Hudal and other German prelates have pointed out the identity of the fundamentals of National Socialism and Catholicism. Father Coughlin, who you know from earlier chapters reading me in this book, and his Jesuit supporters preached the same in this country, the United States of America. To date, 1942, Hitler's blitzkriegs are accomplishing in fact everything set forth in his ideological concepts for a new order in all of Europe after his ruthless extermination of Judaism and Masonry. For centuries, Vatican policy has based all its hopes for the restoration of its dominion over the nations of Europe upon a strong, militaristic Germany that would cleanse the continent of all British Protestant influence from the West and, above all, safeguard it from Russo-Slavic invasion from the East. A greater Germany, in other words, must be made again the center of a revived Holy Roman empire a revived holy roman empire and i will comment on that a little bit later because that's exactly what we have with the european union today it is significant significant that pope leo xiii urged this very plan upon the late kaiser wilhelm ii during the latter's last visit to the vatican The Kaiser, in his memoirs, vividly describes the colorful and solemn setting in which the interview took place, and says that he jotted down what was said for future reference. What interested him most was Pope Leo's insistence that, by war, if necessary, the Holy Roman Empire should be restored, and that to this end, quote, Germany must become the sword of the Catholic Church, unquote. Through the civil law of the land, we are all made Catholics over there in the United States of America, and of course over here in Europe, meaning we are all made Romans. According to the papal bull Unam Sanctam of Antichrist Boniface VIII from 1302, this all is totally legit for the Roman Catholic Church. No individuality. Sacrifice yourself for the common good, as Antichrist Francis said so eloquently at least six times last year during his visit. To the United States of America, when he spoke before a joint session of Congress, he used at least six times the term, the common good. Now you understand what he meant. This is the way the Jesuit order itself is built up, and this is the ideal Catholic aim for states and groups of states. What's the United States, others, other than a group of states? in the political and social order. It is the organic, static, hierarchical, integralist cooperative system of Nazi-Fascist teaching, which is already in effect in many countries of Europe. It is in direct opposition to the disintegralist, dynamic, liberal, free, democratic concept of political and social order. The Jesuit order has its Aryan paragraph corresponding exactly to that of Hitlerism. Its constitutions contain six impediments against reception into the order, the first of which is Jewish descent up to the fourth generation. If Jewish descent is discovered after a candidate's admission, it prevents his quote-unquote radiation, or you can also call it illumination. This Aryan paragraph first appeared in the Statutes of the Order in 1593, was confirmed in 1608, and is to be found in the latest official edition published in Florence in 1893. So that's about 50 years before this book was written. General Councils of the Order have many times proclaimed that Jewish descent must be considered as, quote, an impurity, scandal, dishonor, and infamy." Suarez, a noted Jesuit theologian, also states that Jewish descent is an impurity of such indelible character that it is sufficient to prevent admission into the order. Now, do you really think they have an Aryan paragraph in their order? This identity of interests between Nazi fascism and Jesuit Catholicism in the matter of opposition to the mixture of races and religions is something that cannot be denied. And this ideology is the prime cause of the war that is devastating the world at the present time. Hitler, the fanatic, has already gone a long way to bring it to realisation. If he succeeds in making it permanent, the new order which he has vowed to bring about in Europe will be what the Catholic Church has been strenuously working for during the past four centuries. As a result, Europe will be entirely free of that pseudo-democratic liberalism so hateful to official Catholicism. With or without Hitler, as Justice Bryan says, it had to come and its beginnings could only have been accomplished by the ruthless war now being waged by Nazi fascism, a fact which its Jesuit proponents have fully realized during their centuries of counter-reformation activities. But it is only by facing this fact and forgetting Roman Catholic propaganda in our daily newspapers that we can understand why victory, for an authoritarian Germany, not its crushing defeat by the democratic allies, has been fervently desired by the Vatican. Remember my earlier comment on the building of the EU in the beginning of the quotes from Judge O'Brien? This is exactly what I was talking about and the goal of the Jesuits at the Roman Catholic Church from the start. They use either way. The end justifies the means. To reach their goal, and the grandfather's clock only advances the agenda of the hand of the scale, while you turn from left to right, and right to left, and back. It doesn't matter which way the Roman Catholic Church achieves its goal of a united Europe, of a new revived Holy Roman Empire, whether of the German nation or of no nation, but a revived Holy Roman Empire, what is actually the European Union the day of today?
0: so at this point we're really getting long into this episode you can see that we've really uncoiled quite a lot of this backstory and um, placed into um, position this whole narrative so that you can see that really what we're dealing with in the combination of the Chinese Communist Party and the European Union and this kind of like mind-boggling amalgamation of geopolitic hegemony they intend to uh, for lack of a better word choke off the West in this kind of Power dynamic, and the, the, you can see that the radicalism and the desperation and kind of paranoia of the Chinese Communist Party, and being so terrified of their citizens' ability to think freely, and wanting to control the entire entire body politic and the entire collective consciousness of, of the Chinese people, and other areas that they say are China, like Taiwan and 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 just Thailand and and other areas. And there's a a long history of the Jesuits and their infiltration into imperial China and going back to Francis Xavier, who would eventually become, in his time, the superior general of the Society of Jesus. And at the time, Francis Xavier would penetrate into the the political arena of of China in a deep way until they eventually would set up their own um, kind of Western-educated Jesuit-influenced emperor. It really begins with the story of the East India Trading Company and their desire to have these routes that would circumnavigate the globe and to all points of trade and commerce and economic growth that uh, that brought the preeminence of the monarchs and the imperial powers of Europe into uh, their hegemonic positions and brought their such their, their profoundly great wealth. And you could see that in these, the, the need to protect the, these trading routes and the, the Silk Highway to establish new trading ports all throughout the world and compete with the other monarchs um, they would have to find a way to get into these closed societies like China where they could begin to have influence and they really needed to figure out the language, figure out the culture and the traditions and get into the court of these um, very tightly wound cultural dynamics with very specific mores and unique customs and so they spent very much time trying to get involved and to get into the, the society and into the into the world of, uh, there in China. And ultimately, they would be sent away and, and exiled when they were found to be getting involved with the political affairs of the Chinese people and interfering with the politics there and with the emperor, and ultimately they would be kicked out. But their, their, the influence was what was most important, and they would establish that over time. And as we talked about in other episodes, it was the, the Knights of Malta and really their acolytes... In the United States um, in the the Order of Skull and Bones out of Yale who would be the really wealthy families who would be involved with the shipping routes that brought uh, the opium trade in and out of China and um, you can see that these shipping routes and the the, the ability for them to operate on the high seas and this admiralty law and this high level secret society in the form of these papal knights and uh, these knights of Malta were used by the Pope to establish the temporal and spiritual power of the Pope over other nations. And so they would submit them or ultimately get rulers who would submit in in those places. And that's really what was happening in in Japan and also in China. So in order to kind of bring this discussion to a close, but also to kind of wrap it up, we need to introduce the deep and centuries-old influence of the Vatican there in China and in Phuket and Thailand and Vietnam and in Japan also. So in order to really bring this discussion about, we have segments of this discussion before, when we were discussing the, the Skull and Bones order and the Russell family, William Russell and the different founders of Skull and Bones and their influence in this, the Central Intelligence Agency, and ultimately their, their ties back to the, the British shipping channels and the British shipping magnates uh, and the Knights of Malta who were involved with making sure that they were able to uh, blow open the closed society of the Chinese uh, Mandarin uh, Empire there and to really bring the whole society down with huge shipments of, of opium into their populace in order to make a lot of money, but also to addict the Chinese people and and make them subservient. And so this whole background discussion that's gonna be happening right before the Civil War is really gonna be the issue here and how ultimately the Chinese Communist Party would get into place and how it was established by these Wall Street tycoons and these papal knights. So let's listen to this fascinating discussion here. We have Eric John Phelps here with Brian David Anderson, and they're just kind of having this, this discussion. And like I said before, we really use a lot of sources a lot of quotations, a lot of authors and a lot of researchers, and we, we don't always agree with every single thing that they say or every position that they take, but ultimately we do have to source the reference historically in order to make the case here of how, how these different things, these different aspects of history tied together in the background. So anyway, without further ado, let's finish up this episode with this interesting discussion.
9: ...true history, because you have a whole series of authors that now have commented because it always then connects itself back into China. And the history of Fouquet and also the Jesuits in China are all intertwined with one another. On this map now, you can see the black line is the the, the ship route that how in 1566 when uh, then the, well, go back to 1534 is when the Jesuits were formed and then then there. Uh, basically their oath taking that they were gonna take over the world. And so China then being, one of being the the, the target, uh, if they knew that they were going to do anything in the Far East, China was where they needed to go. So here's how they then did their
15: route. They I, had to go I, I, I wanna I add two things here, Ryan. Good, please. Uh, the, the shippers for the Jesuits at this time were the Spanish and the Portuguese.
7: Exactly. So
15: they were using the Spanish monarch and the Portuguese monarch and his shippers to extend their influence.
9: Yeah, excellent point, because that's also, we'll get into Japan, and that's basically how they got into Japan, literally almost by accident. And so now you have the Spanish and the Portuguese with the Jesuits on board, and they had to go through Phuket, coming from India. You see the black line there, and that's called the Ottoman Sea. So their first port in Southeast Asia was Phuket. Then they worked their way around, came to Singapore, and then up to uh, the Cambodia, Vietnam, and then in China and of course now they they made their beeline and literally said okay they, they didn't drop any Jesuits off on any of these points they went directly into China and of course then they went into the uh, major uh, port of uh, not really port but it was their major province of China and that uh, being around uh, the Peking, Beijing at that time. And that was the banking, the very much influenced type of area. And of course, then they had then Li Zhaoxing, uh was their first, per se, Jesuit uh, type of trained individual. He came in about three
15: or four generations. Go ahead. And in one point. The Macau, for the listener, the Mac- Macau was a Portuguese banking capital and that was very important so this is a banking capital and also and also the inquisition had extended to macau so they had brought their evil powers there and their banking and of course hong kong is right next to macau which will have a significance with the British. Well, but now you had uh, more up
7: also in the northern part of China near the, the Peking
9: also is where they also had a lot of influence and that's where this Li Zhao came from. Basically three uh, uh, generations after the, the Jesuits came in, now Li Zhao Jing starts to come into power uh, he, uh, uh, and other persons like him. Which is also interesting though too is as soon as the jesuits then arrive what else happens there's crop failures season
15: after season sounds like ireland exactly sounds like what they did in ireland they had the potato crop failure and they also shipped out eight freighters a day out of ireland it starved the Irish, and a million Irishmen died, and not many, many Roman Catholic Irishmen fled the United States. And I'm States. Not sure if you
9: also looked at the history of China, you would find the very same thing. But what was interesting, though, is as soon as the Jesuits arrived, you had season after season of crop failures, And of course, then now you had the rise of Li who who is now Jesuit trained, and uh, again, blaming all of the starvation, the resulting famine on the ruling class. Because, And now you have Li Jing basically just walking into with a 20,000 man force, and now deposing of the, uh, the monarchy at that time. And then you had and uh, the emperor that was put in, he, that what was interesting about him is that he uh, was a legendary type of warrior, but then all of a sudden he just disappears right off the map, boom. It's like one day he is there, and then all of a sudden he just disappears. But then uh, they had enough of his forces, people took over. Dao does his revolution, they install a the new emperor, but the emperor is very, very friendly to the Jesuits. And basically what they're also saying is that the Jesuits installed them and now they've got to control of them. Now, you have, this is about 1662 that this new emperor comes in. Between 1662 and 1800, there is a tremendous... Uh, Population explosion
15: and also uh, economic boom that occurs in China. Let me me, me add a couple things here, too. Uh, At this time, when the Jesuits are in China, they become the great astronomers for the emperor. Exactly. And and in Peking today, you can even see the old Jesuit globes and astronomy tools that they use to calculate um, new moons, to calculate the years. And because they were so adept in astronomy, this is what uh, made them so attractive and endeared to the emperor. And so the emperor brought him into his court. Well, but I think also there are
9: because also there's probably it was a mutual thing there because there the Chinese astrologers also and astronomers were very Adept also, I think was probably more of a blending uh-huh. And this is also too is that there was a mixture of the two and that's why again All of your telescopes today are all run by Jesuits and owned by them uh-huh. uh, because there, they see the importance of it
7: so now you had Sixty-two and eighteen hundred, you have this tremendous economic growth
9: occurs in China, and also at the same time you have a population surge. Until that time, uh, China was basically equal uh, population-wise to Thailand to Cambodia. They were it was all much fairly much of a balance, but their true population explosion occurred during this time of profit. Uh, and also, why was it profiting? Because now the uh, Jesuits and
7: with the British. Uh, 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 collaboration had total control
9: over all opium all over the world and you had the East Indian Trading Company which basically again was all run by Knights of Malta uh, and now they're running all the heroin, and well, basically your opium, which is the basis of your heroin, all over the world. And again, we've uh, talked about this before, uh, that uh, a lot of your aristocrats and uh, the high society in Washington, D.C. was all addicted to opium that was run by EITC, which had a lot of other things we will go into right now, but that's an example all over the world in China, and then uh, at the same time, now you have a population explosion, but by 1800, it starts to wane a little bit, and there's a little bit of uh, dissension, and so now you have this excess population, and you don't have that many jobs for the people. And at the same time now, a key thing happens in the late 1700s in Thailand, At the Burma, as you can see north, or what's called Rangoon, basically they're not on the trade route. Hence, their influences in this area, especially the Jesuits, they kind of leave it alone for years. And so Burma still has a lot of designs on Phuket. Why Phuket? It's because there is a tremendous agricultural uh, opportunities in Phuket. The soil is just perfect for all sorts of types of crops. But underneath also the soil is one of the largest tin mines or tin oil ore in the entire world is in Phuket. It's both uh, the whole island of Phuket is nothing but a huge tin ore mine, Mm. and so it's basically you have to do strip mining to do this. It's a a very slave labor, uh, very intense type of of, uh, uh, endeavor to get the tin mine or the tin ore out, and it's also this offshore also. Mm-hmm. But now they weren't going to touch the offshore for a while. Basically now now is that the Thais then uh, wanted to protect this. So uh, the uh, EITC, the, the East Indian Trading Company, the locals, the Jesuits, they all banded together. And when Burma had sent a force down in 1787 to try to take over Phuket, they kicked them all out. And basically now uh, it, the Thailand still was vulnerable. So the Thailand made deals with the the East Indian Trading Company, hence the Jesuits, and they let them control then the tin mining and also the farming of Phuket. And basically then, if the, if the uh, uh, Burmese ever came back and tried to take over, basically then they would be attacking England, they would be attacking the Jesuits. So, and basically then, they basically then pushed off. And so there was no, basically a protected uh, the Thais and protected Phuket, but the price was they had to give up all the economic control. Now, but the Thais, again, they are Siam. There's a whole different type of race from China. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's not Asian type of thing. It's kind of a combination mix. It's like between India and China. And You had the Siamese, which were distinctly a racial type of group. Mm-hmm. But now the Siamese would, didn't want to have anything to do with the slave labor of the tin mines. They knew that this was exploitation. So who were they going to dupe into getting to come here to, to, to tie to Phuket to do this? Well, now you had this excess population in China after 1800, and now they were they needed to get rid of this population. Otherwise, now this unrest of all these people unemployed, hence now you had them go to America and build the railroads. Yes, yes. Yes, I was just thinking
15: about that. All oh, the Chinese so coolies, yeah, the Chinese yeah. coolies in California.
9: Right. A, That's basically again. Now you had two sets. You had what we don't understand is that the 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 number that was sent to America was probably around two hundred thousand. People don't realize is that six hundred thousand immigrants from China were sent to Thailand. of them ended up in Phuket as slaves, literally. I mean, we say indentured servants, but they were slaves in the tin mines. Now, again, you also had these Chinese men now that were exported over, and they weren't going back to China. There was no way they were told that they were double crossed. Oh, yeah, you're going to work there for two or three years and come back. Well, they never did. They were never able to come back to China. Hence, then they intermarried with the Thais in Phuket, when you go to Phuket now today, it is dominantly now this mixture of Siam Siam and also China. You go to Bangkok and you see totally a different type of race. Now there's been more infiltration of north, but when you, especially when you get to Chiang Mai, Chiang Rai, up in the northern parts of Thailand, you really see then uh, what the Thais really look like, per se, racially wise. So now you had a mixture of races also in Thailand. But again, it was a very sweet deal. Here was China having all the sulfur population and also unemployment. And so now they are exporting, literally exporting their people off to various parts. Another place that they also exported off to was uh, the plantations in South America people don't realize that there was also a big contingent of, of per se, coolies. And I don't, to me, the word coolies is, uh, I don't like that. So It's a racial type of thing, but, and that's, i mean, well, it's, like, it's, like for a better word to say that, but the coolies were then sent all over, not only to the United States, but to South America, and also, as we said here, to Southeast Asia. And
7: the other
15: thing so
9: that it moved is that this also kept any type of revolutionary type of things
15: against, per se, now the Jesuit controlled in China. Yeah. And uh, two thoughts. The, they brought in lots of Chinese uh, slaves, for lack of a better term, to Panama. I'm sorry. In Panama, there are lots of Chinese down there, at least from, from being uh, in years, because they were the ones working on the Panama Canal. And who owns the, who runs the Panama Canal today? The Chinese. The Chinese. Tatsu expelled the Jesuits in 1614. That was considered final, but they ultimately had to do that nobody could come into Japan, I believe around 1639. And the only ones they allowed to come to port in Japan were the Dutch Protestants because of Will Adams, and Will Adams was the Dutch, the English ship captain of a Dutch Protestant ship who warned the emperor of the Jesuits and who brought the British in to fight the Portuguese in a great really big sea battle. And that I believe about 30,000 Japanese were killed. So it was a big battle, in the, and as far as I believe, it seems to me, the Jesuits were indeed kept out for over 200 years until Commodore Perry and his gunboats come in in 1854 and forcefully open Japan to the British and to the Americans. And it's at that time that the Tokugawa Shogunate is overthrown in 1867 because the Tokugawa Shogunate was the abject enemy of the Jesuit order. You have a few
9: minutes here is basically now you at the same time you had Mao Tse who was had many all of his whole family was nothing but connected to Jesuits uh he was from a very rich family but he was also just a pervert himself I mean just a really decadent type of person he comes in kicks out right
15: that's right, that's right we'll just tell the listeners uh, Mao Tse Tung was known for deflowering Chinese virgins one after another one after another according to his own wife That was her admission.
9: So now you had uh, the deposing of the monarchies, you now had this strict control being put over uh, it's now, papers now coming out, This is saying that the, the, the Catholic Church was not persecuted if you were Buddhist you were but the Catholics then quote secretly now again on a surface level then Mao Zedong uh, deposes and he now kicks out all the Jesuits the but who, take, yes, yeah, sir. But who takes all of their places is now the Knights of Malta you have the left hand of the Jesuits yes. of the Vatican yes. and now they're supposedly <laughs> Kicked out, and now, but you have Prescott Bush, who is now uh, uh, George Bush's brother. He is a, one of the major shakers in China, yes. and so you yeah, have. They were replaced by Knights of Malta. Yes. So and now you And, had, and, and by you, the way, yeah, Prescott
15: Bush Jr. is a Knight of Malta.
9: Mm-hmm. Exactly. So, you, that, that, but he was also preceded by people. You also had Bill Donovan of the CIA, and you also had uh, 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 CIA. Uh, but. Donovan, but our other one... Uh, uh, Alan, Alan Dulles. Alan Dulles, right, right Alan Dulles. Mm-hmm. Uh, both Jesuit, uh, educated and controlled. They put in Mao Zedong. Mm-hmm. And so that the communi- there would never have been any type of communism whatsoever in China had it not been for all of these historic facts. And then you also had your concentration camps, you had your re-education camps, which were basically, again, modeled after Jesuit camps, built in Nazi Germany, built in America, uh, in Russia, Russia. 14 Russia, so basically again, uh, we now have, now China supposedly being the model for everything and uh, we now have Vietnam uh, it was really for me is it wasn't until I started doing all this research five six years ago is that being a child growing up you would watch the, the evening news and they had the Buddhist priests come out they would douse themselves in gasoline and put a fire to themselves well being uh, uh, you know growing up in Texas why are the Buddhists doing that and you were never told it's right why because that, dirt,
15: that dirty, stinking, wicked sinner Walter Concrete lied to us every night. I can remember watching him on TV. My father was watching him every night talking about Vietnam. Walter Cronkite never told us anything about that. And the other, thing, and, the, and the other thing, and the other thing was that uh, Fletcher Prouty said that the that the American Navy was used to bring down all the Roman Catholics out of North Vietnam, and they told all the Catholics that the Virgin Mary had gone south. So they brought the Catholics down so they could argolite bomb the, the Buddhists in the north that's
7: right again is that you now had a very still
9: was a minority of your whole South Vietnamese being totally all Catholic and being Jesuit influenced and Jesuit installed and we never heard about the persecutions against the the Buddhists well why were they putting themselves on fire we never were told well you had Jesuit dominated the DM and all the other dictators uh, that were for South Vietnam
15: they were were still trying to do this genocide against the Buddhists we were never told this. Right. And DM, he had two brothers. It was his right. one brother was the head of the secret police. And his other brother was the Archbishop of the Way. So
9: now it's, uh, we, so Vietnam War would have never occurred. We also had the Cambodian uh, uh, deal uh, where millions of people were killed in Cambodia. Why Pol Pot? Who was his mentor?
7: Speaking of Big Brzezinski, right. Brzezinski's mentor Jimmy
9: Carter and Barry Satoro aka uh, Obama. So it just goes on and on deposes and he now kicks out all the Jesuits. The
7: 1949. Who, take, yeah, who who takes all of their places is now the Knights of Malta. You have the left hand of the Jesuits yes. of the Vatican yes. and now they're <laughs> supposedly kicked out and
9: now but you have Prescott Bush, who is now uh, uh, George Bush's brother. He is a, one of the major shakers in China. Yes. And so you yeah, have they were replaced by Knights of Malta. Yes. So and now you and, have, and by he, the way, yeah Prescott
15: Bush Junior is a Knight of Malta. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So you then, then, he was also preceded by people. You also had Bill
9: Donovan of the CIA, and you also had uh, 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 CIA, uh, but Donovan, but our uh, other one. Uh, uh, Alan, Alan Dulles. Alan Dulles, right. right. Alan Dulles, uh, both Jesuit uh, educated and controlled, they put in Mao Zedong. And so the, the commun- there would never have been any type of communism whatsoever in China had it not been for all of these historic facts. And then you also had your concentration camps, you had your re education camps, which were basically, again, modeled after Jesuit camps built in Nazi Germany, built in America uh, in nineteen uh, fourteen Russia. Russia. So basically, again, uh, we now have now China supposedly being the model for everything.
0: So there you have it It's like threading a needle But we're able to look throughout all these disparate areas All these various points of view And divergent sources of information That shouldn't necessarily line up About various topics and various disciplines of knowledge And history and economics and finance and religion And we're able to use these different authors These different researchers These different progenitors of the old and courageous facts That you can't find nowadays You can't look on MSNBC and see anything that's even remotely like the truth. And nowadays, you have to far and wide to try to see anything, any semblance of truth at all there's not even a modicum of truth that's out there, so we're going to work hard over here a Looking Glass Forum, we're going to continue to be courageous, and to be fearless and to point out the facts, the facts of the matter and uh, these were just excerpts small little bits of the whole topic, hour long programs so I just, I encourage you to get into research, get into learning mode, become an autodidactic with my wife. You can learn what things are by paying attention and finding out the truth and having the courage to think for yourself. And you'll see that a lot today. These COVID restrictions, they're just making you all look like cowards. You're supposed to be Americans. It's the land of the free and the home of the brave and you guys look like a bunch of cattle. A bunch of steer. you going to get retagged re-tag steer, that's that's what they're looking at for you guys so I hope that this is beneficial for you because it's, it's important to me to speak the truth and to to live up to that standard and to try to make straight paths for the Lord's you know, the Lord's coming and the time's getting close and uh, the history about This evil empire there in Rome has to be exposed, and the world can't remain ignorant and blind to it forever.